So why don't I start with my most important producer, which is George Martin. Okay, uh, before you get to that, yeah. let, let's, uh, there's something that needs to be said. What the hell does a producer do? Oh, great, great point. Yeah, now I, for, you know, even though I've, I've been, you know, a working musician for, since I was, what, 14 or whatever, uh, you know, I always, like, well, I thought the producer was more responsible for the technical side. I always associated producer, you know, the title of producer with probably the engineer or the mixer. Um, and it's not necessarily that at all. No, it's like not. Papers, uh, in the case of, say, Andrew Lou Goldham, uh, who thought that electric guitars were plugged into a, a wall socket. <laughs> um, it's... Uh, so, I mean, what what is a producer to you? I mean, I, I guess I'll just say, I think a producer is a guy who hangs around and, and runs his mouth. Yeah. Opinion. So the producer is basically the, the person, uh, in a, a great example of this, I forgot to put him on my list, is the producer of London Calling. You know, Guy Stevens was, the, the myth is like, you know, throwing chairs around the studio and trying to get the clash to get their energy up. The producer is usually not at the control board. The producer is more um, kind of like the movie director in a way, um, you know, trying to keep the energy up. Um, you know, can we? Why don't we try another take of that? Um, the vision thing, as a certain ex-president would have it, that vision thing. That vision thing, right. Um, you know, keeping the, the energy up, maybe um, it's time to take a break. Why don't you guys go out and, you know, play football for a while outside and, um, or, you know, let's let's do another take. Let's just keep at it. Um, you know, it's really that, yeah, that overall vision thing as opposed to being, you know, actually mixing the tracks at the board. Well, okay, and I would also, there's a discrepancy, and you should know this, because you, you actually, well, you do know this, but uh, our, the terms mixer, I would say that's the engineer. The, 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 the engineer initially is the guy, he's the tape operator. He's putting the sounds down, so... Okay, no, that, that's right. Part to itself, which often comes you know, much later in the process, after the recording of... Uh, the basic track. That's a very good point. So yeah, uh, really we shouldn't say mixer, we should say the engineer is the person at the board, and then there's the producer, and then the person mixing might come in after they've totally recorded everything to you know, mix the, uh, the different levels of the tracks. And so, there can be overlap. There can be overlap, yeah. Uh, which we'll no doubt get to. Uh, right. Claremont would be a great example of that. He's, he's primarily known as a mixer by his own admission, but he has found himself in the producer's chair, uh, particularly back in the day, uh, back in the 80s, uh, for his just overall sensibilities. So he, you know, he's a guy who would wear a couple hats in the initial recordings the initial basic in recordings of the basic backing tracks. Right, and yeah, mixing is an art in itself. You can have the greatest performance uh, and the greatest tracks, but if they're not mixed with the right balance, you know, if the drums aren't loud enough in relation to the guitars, it can just sound all wrong. 
which is one reason why Pink Floyd and Dark Side of the Moon, I guess they had all they tried all these different people to mix the tracks and Chris Thomas kind of came out the winner, right? Because it had to have that certain je ne sais quoi to get you know capture the vibe. I didn't know Chris uh, Chris Thomas was involved in that. Apparently, yeah, he was the one they chose for mixing it. Really? Because he's a guy that I would always associate, certainly as a producer later on in his career, but yeah, as a, uh, uh, primarily an engineer. Um, well, that's maybe just my ignorance. I, I didn't know a lot of these guys, as, as we pointed out, wear you know several hats, right, you know, and their duties in the studio. Um, well, you go ahead, but uh, let's, uh, let's talk about George Martin. Yeah, so George Martin is a good place to start because he's a great example of that. You know, it, things were very regimented at Abbey Road. The staff actually wore, like, white lab coats, and there was, like, there was, right. a, there was a person, almost like union, unionized jobs, right? There was a tape operator, right. and there was, um, you know, the engineers at, at the desk, and then there was George Martin, who was going down, you know, kind of walking between the Beatles were down the stairs in Abbey Road Studio 2, and they'd be looking down through the glass, and he'd be going down. Um, you know, they're often doing their initial takes, like, live as a band and talking to them, like, okay, how are we going to arrange this? You know, let's try this chorus two times. You know, what if you did this here? And kind of, you know, the liaison, if you will, of, between the band and the rest of the staff. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, he basically produced all the the Beatles music with, you know, a few minor exceptions that we really don't need to go into here. And um, because, uh, you know, you and I have talked before, he had a classical music background. He could actually uh, arrange music like they needed an orchestral score. He knew how to do that. He could write music for the musicians that would come in for the sessions. Um, if they needed, like, in my the song In My Life, they needed, like, a Baroque kind of uh, piano solo. Um, he recorded that, uh, recorded it at half speed, and then they sped it up, so it sounded even cooler. So he could... He could he could play parts if they needed. He was open to their experimentation. You know, he wasn't, even though he was older than them and more formal, because of his um, previous experience with like comedy records and sound experimentation, he was open to their ideas. And he could recognize, you know, the genius of what they were doing uh, and translate it, especially John Lennon, who would just say, oh, I want this to sound orange or brown or whatever you know he could actually had the patience to listen to that and you know try to come up with uh solutions and you know he from the first record to the last <coughs> he was um you know their producer often ca called the fifth beetle sure sure right well billy preston sometimes got that applied to him as well <laughs> uh, right but you know billy preston only played on one <clears throat> you know, one and a half records of their stuff, yeah. whereas George Martin was there the whole time. Right, 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 yeah. I, I was just and then that. we can also, you know, 
George Martin, his highlight was definitely the Beatles, but he definitely, you know, he did other things like um, the America albums, you know, like Venture Highway and, uh, you know, all those hits by America. He did uh, Jeff Beck. Um, he did Paul McCartney, Tug of War. You know, so he definitely um, had things. He opened up uh, a studio, Air Studios in Montserrat, where like all the bands in the 80s, like The Police and, you know, Phil Collins, uh, a lot of hits were recorded at his studio before uh, a volcano destroyed the studio like 10 years later. So that's an interesting part of his legacy as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the Stones recorded a, a chunk of uh, yep. emotional rescue there. Uh, mm hmm yeah. Now, I would say that, well, it may not be entirely accurate. Um, I'll get to Phil Spector, I guess, later. But, uh, well, he offered a similar uh, kind of uh, uh, vision thing as uh, George Martin did uh, for the United States. Um, and... Uh, the orchestral arrangements. He was a musician, um, not very accomplished, but uh, um, for me, even more important than well, as important as Phil Spector uh, in the in the, in the U.S. would be the Motown team of uh, Holland Dozier, Holland, Alvin mm -hmm. Whitfield, Barrett Strong, who were the primary songwriters, but also uh, producers for from roughly 59, 1959 to well, 72, you know, mm. roughly like that. And so they also operated as uh, the production staff, uh, the, you know, the house production staff. Mm. Uh, so, uh, you know, Eddie Holland and his brother, uh, Brian Holland and uh, Lamont Dozier. Norman Woodfield, Barrett Strong, so all those, you know, great, great tracks, you know, The Temptations, The Four Tops, uh, Supreme, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Smokey Robinson, The Miracles, uh, that's uh, not only their songwriting, but their, uh, their, you know, production, their vision, their technique. And you could say, and as Esmond said, the Motown was the original sort of factory, you know, uh, an identifiable sound, and it's almost mirrored in today's uh, pop music uh, paradigm, where you have a whole stable of people, songwriters, you know, in-house songwriters, in-house production staff. Of course, you know, the setup is different. You know, the technicalities of, you know, actual recording are vastly different. Mm -hmm. But uh, that sort of paradigm of, uh, you know, we just pump out the hits and we give it an identifiable song, sound, you know, for better or worse today. I say for better or worse today. Uh, back then, it was, you know, pretty unimpeachable, you know, like if you like the Motown sound, you really like the sound, and, and it went on for, you know, over a decade, you know. Just yeah, and it's an interesting time. sound, isn't it? I mean, it's unique. It was really taking, like, R&B and kind of polishing it up, and it's almost like 
got a reggae thing going on with that, you know, kind of chinka 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 kind of, uh, you know, very stringent like percussive chords along with the beat and it really had a, a definitive beautiful sound to it. Well, interesting that that, that you know more the classic house band uh, yeah. was known as you know the Funk Brothers, and it's not a funky sound per se. It's not what would turn into what we know as American funk until say the late '60s, and that you'd have to go further south into uh, Memphis for that. That would be Stax Folk. That's right. And that was a, you know, vastly the, almost the polar opposite of the Motown uh, sound. Very stripped down, um, almost martial uh, rather than funky. It would take Sly Stone, I think, really to uh, you know what we identify today as as funk. Um, yep. But uh, Jim Stewart was the guy behind uh, Stax. And uh, he would be up there on my my list um, with you know the house band uh, being Booker T and the MGs. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, Otis Redding is probably my favorite single artist ever, mm-hmm. um, and probably my favorite male singer um, ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, it's not just him. It's it's you know just every Sam and Dave, you know, Irma Thomas, Rufus Thomas are dead, uh, and you know, Wilson Pickett, uh, you know, just all these great great artists, and you know, many just you know one off people who only had you know one or two singles recorded, but they all had that sound, this very basic, dry, stripped down sound, unlike Motown. No embellishments, no sort of baroque or florid or orchestra feel. Now we're taught in the you know to bring us back to production. Do we know who was producing those songs for Stacks? Jim Stewart. Jim Stewart was producing. Okay. And the owner. He's the owner and the founder. I know he was the owner, but he was actually the producer. Yeah, with his sister. Okay. Um, no, was he? Yeah, he knew his way around. You know, a mixing board. Um, I'm sure they had other engineers and other, you know, other people, uh, you know, Isaac Hayes, you know, was an in, in-house producer, you know, actually played, uh, keyboards, uh, when, uh, say, you know, Booker T was, you know, not available or out on the road, you know, Booker T, yeah, yeah. They, didn't tour, they didn't tour much. Right. Um, they did a couple, you know, very famous and legendary tours, uh, you know, the Stax tour of 
African-American music, you know, as it was, you know, being developed in real time in, in, the, in the early 60s. Right. So sort of an odd, uh, oh, an odd, you know, pairing, you know, he's, you know a country musician. And of course, you know, Memphis, you know, has you know, a very rich tradition of, of, you know, country music as well. Uh, so it's not that, you know, odd. And the, the, both, you know, Motown and Stax would be examples of that, you know, sort of hit factory, you know. Yeah. We crank out the hits and we have, we have a sound, an identifiable sound. We have, you know, a backing band that, you know, always hits the mark, always delivers. Um, we have the ability... Well, another thing, I, it should be noted that Stax Volt, they almost hardly ever used uh, overdubbing. Oh, uh, interesting. I think the, you know, the extent of their recording capabilities up until, I don't know, roughly 1970 was, uh, you know, 8-track. Um, it's mm -hmm. probably very high-tech back then. So uh, they were, like, basically just playing it as a band live, capturing it as a live performance almost yeah yeah the main studio at, at Stax was uh, a converted uh, theater and yeah. uh, apparently the uh, the mixing was on the elevated stage uh, yeah and I have to say I have I've been there actually um, it's a museum now uh, and I, I believe the original burned down and they recreated it but the, at least oh, the yeah, recreation yeah. is there so, so you've seen. So, the, what does the room look like? The the the, the mixing the booth is elevated. Is that correct? Is that how they reproduced it? Um, the mixing desk. I, I, I seem to remember it was actually in the large room itself. Um, yeah, I could yeah, be wrong yeah. about that, but I do remember the room was big, almost like it almost felt like a gymnasium or something. Yeah. Well, it was it was a theater. Yeah. Um, yeah, like theater size. Yeah, I think, you know, not a movie theater, but more a, you know, old-timey stage theater. Yeah. Uh, it had a cool vibe. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, well, you've been to Abbey Road as well. Jeez. Yeah. Did you, were, have you ever seen the you know, Motown? You know, they have a, a, a museum for their... Yeah, I've been there as well. That's interesting. That's just... Motown Studio is just like in a house like on a street you know very small and uh, the um, studio is just in the basement and there's like you know a room with glass for the mixing board and then the actual recording studio is like somebody's living room that's very small and then they show you when you start the tour there's a in the up the main level there's a uh, kind of a square hole in the ceiling to go up to the attic and they, they said that's where they would wire up, that's where they recorded all the reverb and the, the tour guide like demonstrates and like claps his hands and you can hear the reverb up in the attic and it's very uh, homemade yet this beautiful organic sound they got there and they get that huge sound from a it kind of it kind of ironic that you say stacks is actually a very big room right that they have kind of a, a you know a very compact very organic you know sound uh, and uh, yeah. Motown a very small uh, studio 
but uh, they would. Well, yeah, they you know used overdubbing and all that as well. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, well, we're with the oldies. I mean, what's uh, what we get into? Let's talk about Chris Thomas. Speaking of the Beatles, um, yeah. I believe got his start uh, working with the Beatles. I think on the White Album. That's like second engineer or something. Uh, what, what do you? Is that accurate? Uh, yeah, I think he worked on the White Album. I think he may have been there, like you know, a few years by that point. But um, yeah, he he worked on the White Album. Um, and I think the story goes that um, George Martin was kind of sick of them by then and just decided to go on uh, vacation in the middle of recording and, and left him a note like, uh, I'm going on vacation, um, you know, you'll, you'll be fine, please look after the boys, see you in two weeks. And he's like, oh, okay. Nice. Yeah, so kind of trial by fire. Um, so yeah, he worked on that. Um, he mixed Dark Side of the Moon, um, Badfinger, last two albums, um, Sex Pistols, Anarchy in the UK, single, um, uh, Pulp, Different Class, um, Wings Back to the Egg, The Pretenders, uh, the first two albums, the EP, then Learning to Crawl. Those are kind of highlights for me for Chris Thomas. What do you got? Well, yeah, he yeah he's got a very very long distinguished you know, CV, uh, obviously. But uh, for me, it's the hallmark of Thomas's sound. And what introduced me was the uh, the Sex Pistols. Uh, never mind the Bullocks. Uh, never mind the Bullocks. It's the Sex Pistols, uh, which was done with. Uh, with uh, Bill Price and the story that Bill Price uh, told was that Chris Thomas did the initial single Anarchy in the UK and Malcolm McLaren who was you know the Pistols manager would uh, bring them both in at different times to record different tracks right. uh, as potential singles and maybe you've heard this story too. Or yeah, reality, right? I've heard a version of it. And uh, finally, and they're they're putting the album together based on tracks that you know, you know, Chris and Bill had recorded. And apparently, uh, they both confronted uh, Malcolm and said, "You yeah, know, what's the deal here?" Yeah, well, they figured out Malcolm was trying to pull fast one and not pay. I'm right. And they just said, okay, look, you know, hand over the money, and me and maybe, you know, Chris and Bill, we'll, we'll divvy it up between ourselves. So the credits on the album actually say produced by Chris Thomas or Bill Price. Yeah, um, I had heard a version of that too, and that um, no one, and so no one knows for sure, like, who produced what, because they didn't keep accurate records of, you know. Yeah. Of who exactly that, did it? That was my introduction to because the sound of that record of uh, the Pistols album is just you know it's monolithic. It's extremely textured, extremely 
dense. It's murky. Mm-hmm. It's muddy. Um, you know, there have been remasters uh, through the years. Uh, and uh, But uh, that was a hallmark of Chris Thomas's sound for me that would um, endure until I lost track of his work. Uh, and Bill Price's. Um, so for Chris Thomas, it would be the Pistols album. Mm-hmm. And they both specialized, both Bill Price and Chris Thomas, specialized in really, really great drum sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul Cook's drum sound with the Pistols. Um, another album which came out very shortly after that, which I rank as uh, as good, as great as the Pistols or even the Clashes debut album, which was, you know, a very you know, low rent, you know, job, uh, you know, featuring the sound man as de facto producer. Mm-hmm. But um, would be the Tom Robinson band's debut. They only did two albums. Mm-hmm. But, uh, Power of the Darkness, uh, and that features you know Chris Thomas as a producer and Bill Price as uh, you know lead engineer, and again the drum sound, uh, Dolphin Taylor, you know only did that first album uh, with the Tom Robinson band, and then left the band and joined Spitz Little Fingers um, for one album. Uh, it's got, again, has this great texture, this murky, very rich, deep sounds, very bassy, uh, very, very drama heavy. This is the Tom um, Robinson albums you're talking about now? Yes, I'm talking about, yeah, Power in the Darkness. Okay. Uh, and uh, he really, really knew how to record electric guitars. Uh huh. Uh, Steve Jones. The multiple overdubs on Pistols uh, album. Um, you know, he was a great player live. He could, you know, he pull it off live. Uh, you know, they they showed that on the 1996 on the, the Pistols you know, did a reunion and uh, released a live album, which again Chris Thomas produced. And uh, I think there's no overdubs that I can hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, Filthy Lucre uh, Live is uh, in that album. So Thomas, uh, Steve Jones, he's a great guitar player. Um, but it's just a, a very dense sound that, that Thomas uh, uh, had and pulled off. And Bill Price, in his own right, had that quality too. And you think of his work with, uh, say, Mott the Hoople's final two albums, uh, Mott and then the Hoople. And again, you know, Buffin's drum sound, uh, just, you know, how he recorded the drums, I'm sure was very, very important and probably had a lot to do with Glenn Johns. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Glenn you know, wrote, wrote a book uh, a few years ago. I haven't read it. I read it. Huh? I read it. I, I've seen some 
videos that he's made, tutorials, like one of micing drums. Yeah. And apparently he'd use free mics. Mm-hmm. You know, every drum was not close mic at all. Oh, interesting. Uh, he'd have, you know, one, you know, vaguely to the left of the hi-hat and the snare, an overhead mic, and I want to say one vaguely between the kick drum and the floor tom. Uh, so I, I think that was a setup. And so yeah. he used that for, you know, I don't know how he did it with the Who, you know, considering, you know, you know Keith Moon, uh, you know, set up his large drum set, but also his, his, his crazy style of playing. Um, I've got him listed here as co-producer on Who's Next, which is a great sounding record. Yeah, it is. Uh, and they actually got some punch from Keith Moon, then, mm-hmm. uh, some drum punch. He, he dialed back his, his, you know, theatricality, his histrionics on the drums. I, I think um, Glenn engineered the Small Faces Ogden's Met Gone Flake, which is you know, my favorite Small Faces album and one of my favorite albums anyway. And uh, as we, we, we spoke a little bit ago about you know, how, how I think the mono of that is, is so much superior. It really accentuates Kenny Jones and, and Ryan Lane's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, rhythm patterns, rhythm section patterns, which are very catchy, very punchy, and the initial you know, U.S. stereo mix. Well, that's interesting. You uh, you mentioned Ronnie Lane and the Small Faces because two of the albums I listed for Glenn Johns are Faces, you know, which were an outgrowth of Small Faces. A nod is as good as a wink, and Rough yeah. Mix, uh, Ronnie Lane and Pete Townsend, which are both great sounding records. Yeah, they are. They're they're, they're great sounding records. I think you know they're great, you know, artistically. Um, uh, yeah, both. You, very great records. Uh, you know, Glenn did. Well, the Faces only put out four proper studio albums, but mm-hmm. other than the the debut, First Steps, uh, which is actually you know, listed as Small Faces, mm-hmm. which, uh, the cover of uh, the U.S. version. Um, yeah, he, he did uh, uh, Long Player, Not as Good as a Wink, and their uh, Swan Song, Ooh La La. And yeah, those are good sounding records. The guitars, those bricks, they really, they really knew how to record drums and electric guitars mm-hmm. for maximum impact. You know, this is like the uh, first, probably second wave. You know, British, you know, rock and roll. You know, not revive, not well, invasion, whatever you want to call it. But yeah, I'm talking about late sixties And, uh, 
another tangent related to Glenn Johns is his brother was Ethan Johns, who, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't he produce television's Marquee Moon? Uh, are we talking about Andy Johns? Well, that was Andy Johns. Andy Johns, yeah, yeah. He, he as an engineer, he, he worked with a lot of the same people, you know, his older brother did, uh, Emma Stones and... You know, I think primarily as an engineer, but I think, yeah, he had some production uh, credits uh, in his own right as well. So he did the, uh, the first television album, Marky Yeah, You see, now talk about a great recorded album. Uh, that's just a great sounding record, the drums and guitars. That's, you're right. It was produced by, I'm looking at it right now, produced by the band's frontman Tom Verlaine and sound engineer Andy Johns. It's, so I know that's an album you still want to discover more, but just in terms of sound, it's recorded very well. Well, yeah. Again, you got a lot to work with. You got a great drummer in Billy Psyka. You got two great guitar players in Verlaine and Richard Lloyd. So, you know, even though, you know, the, the British scene, punk scene or whatever, you know, uh, was vastly different from the American, uh, say, you know, particularly the New York City scene. Yeah. Uh, both drums and guitars. Uh, and by and large, the British guys seem to, I think because they really pioneered this these re, great recording techniques for small combos mm-hmm. you know small bands as opposed to uh, you know the you know the big phil specter uh motown uh sounds of uh of the 60s yeah which were well going out of fashion and uh or george martin you know his orchestral Baroque touches with the Beatles, who, of course, by 1970, you know, broke up, um, ushering on, you know, a new, a new decade and a new era. Um, so the lessons learned by these guys uh, from these Brits, uh, there's a, a great passage on uh, uh, the Stone Sticky Fingers from 71 that says. Uh, in very small print, the recording cycles are X, you know, DBs, decibels, and blah, 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 57, uh, blah, blah, very technical stuff. Uh, and this, you know, album has been recorded into, in the, uh, according to the Guy Stevens manual of recording. Of course, you know, Guy Stevens, you know, produced. And with an engineer, I, uh, early on, he worked with, you know, Small Faces and all kinds of bands, you know, you know by the time he did London Calling with the Clash, you know, he was he, you know, considered washed up, he was, you know, heavily alcoholic and drug dependent and, uh, you know, really didn't do much or anything on the technical side. That was all Mick Jones and Bill Price engineering, you know, doing the actual production work. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, you know, Guy was his primary function as producer was to create a vibe, a vision thing. So uh, now we're uh, now technically uh, 
Jimmy Miller was the official producer of Sticky Fingers, correct? Yes, yes, yes. Um, and so just to finish these notes, yeah. it's, uh, if you disagree with any of these, you know, sonic levels that, you know, from this, you know, well, just turn, turn the volume up <laughs> on the record. Um, just very funny. Uh, the Stones had always recorded their records, at least in the mastering process, and probably in the mixing process too, with uh, the bass, Bill Wyman's bass playing, primarily Bill, um, and Charlie's kick drum, kind of low, with, I'm sure it was with the thought that these records were going to be played very loud at you know, host parties and wherever. You're gonna be playing a new Stones record really bloody loud. Um, and so you didn't want, you know, the low end to be making your turntable, you know, skip the needle jump just through sheer volume. Um, and that's gone to the mastering process and all that, and that's the very technical stuff, which I don't fully understand, uh, maybe know a bit more about, but, you mentioned Jimmy Miller. And Jimmy yeah, well, okay, before we get okay, too deep with Jimmy Miller, I just want to um, bring to a conclusion your uh, thought earlier. You said Sticky Fingers was produced according to the Guy Stevens methodology. So can you flesh that out a little bit about what that methodology was at that point? This is just, this is a note that was on the original vinyl. Okay. Uh, on the, the, the inner sleeve, dust sleeve, uh, the liner notes. And I don't know if it's been reproduced on you know, the various CD reissues or remasters. But how, how do you interpret that? What is the methodology that they're alluding to? I think it was kind of, you know, kind of, uh, kind of a joke, kind of a fistic. They were saying, this record essentially uh, it's a really technically very well recorded album, and if you don't agree, just turn it up. It'll sound better. Okay. Um, I could grab a copy, a CD copy, a sticky finger. I've got a few of them, different, but uh, I don't know if I'd be able to read it because uh, it's very small print. That's what I took it to mean. Uh, famously, the album preceding. Sticky Fingers uh, for the Stones was Let It Bleed and at the end of the liner notes on, on that it said play loud exclamation point um, and so I'm thinking that that had to do with uh, the new recording techniques that were rapidly developing in music that you should turn it up and it'll sound better. Remember, people were getting into really fancy high-tech stereos and sound systems right. around that time. And um, recorded music was, uh, you know, te technically the recording process and technologies were, you know, you know, just advancing very rapidly, you know, almost akin to the way they're advancing, well, not recording today. I think it's stagnant today. Uh, but um, uh, in, in, encouraging people, it, it's kind of, uh, well, turn it up loud. It'll sound really good. And indeed, back then, 
them, and that's what people nostalgically long for, the days when you had your, you know, big pioneer, you know, stereo system with your excellent analog, you know, vinyl, uh, and how great things sounded. And that's part of the whole, you know, vinyl fetish, as I call it, you know, uh, revival of today. Oh, it sounds so much better. Well, that's really, yeah. A lot of vinyl is actually sourced from, you know, digital transfers, you know. Yeah. Uh, just marked up price-wise, you know. It's a marketing thing and a fetish thing. Uh, well, one interesting thing you were talking about, how the bass had to be, you know, tempered down uh, when you're mastering a vinyl because otherwise the needle would skip a groove. So an interesting thing now is when they're like, give you an example, some of the new Beatles remixes for the Red and Blue album, they can finally crank up Ringo's kick drum and Paul's bass, um, you know, for if you're listening like digitally on Spotify or if you're listening on CD, they can really crank those up and give, you know, give it more punch. Um, they still have to, you know, be careful when they're mastering vinyl, but technology is much more advanced than being able to bring out the bass and kick drum more today, which is kind of uh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, I haven't heard those Beatles, re well, they're actually remixes more than remasters. I right. Mean, done full of Giles Martin, George Martin's son, has, you know, done some actual de facto remixes. Uh, right. And, um, you know, the Stones haven't done that. Uh, you know, they've done some, you know, horrible sounding remasters, you know, very loud, compressed, brick walled is, is the term people use. Um, they did one full on remix, uh, courtesy of Giles Martin. That was for uh, 1973's Bullshit Soup album. Mm -hmm. and also produced by Jimmy Miller, right? Yeah, the original, it was originally produced by Jimmy Miller. That was his final album with the Stones. And, uh, uh, yeah, one of the hallmarks of Jimmy Miller's sound with the Stones, that's where I discovered his work, uh, was with the Stones. Uh, his first album was Beggar's Banquet, uh, which was preceded by the non-album single Jumpin' Jack Flash. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the such album of the moon. Uh, it was, it's a murky, deep, dense sound, very heavy on percussion and drums emphasized, and very much like his British counterparts. Jimmy Miller was an American, um, and so he and he himself, you know, was a drummer and a very good drummer too. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's him playing on you know, several Stone songs. Uh, you can't always get what you want. Uh, Happy from you know, Keith's song from Exile Main Street. Uh, oh, interesting. Let loose another track from Exile Main Street. Um, so Charlie Watts didn't play on You Can't Always Get What You Want? No, he didn't. Interesting. That's you know, the story is that he couldn't get the Nor New Orleans uh, second line groove. Oh, interesting. And so Charlie actually uh, recommended, said, Jimmy, play it for me. 
eight and Jimmy played it. I said, oh, okay, well, why don't you just play it on the track? Oh, interesting. I had no idea. And Charlie never played it that way live, ever. And, uh-huh. You know, for 60 years on, until his death. Uh, never played it like the record. Th- this is nonsense. This, this story, this myth, this legend about what I just described, you know, how uh, you know, Jimmy ended up playing on the track. Because the debut of You Can't Always Get What You Want was at the Stones Rock and Roll Circus. Uh, yeah. which is, you know, recorded and filmed for TV, and Stones didn't like it. They thought the Who upstaged them. And uh, it wasn't released until, you know, the mid-90s, 1995. And they debut the song. It's a brand-new song. This is, you know, a year before, uh, you know, recorded properly for the Let It Bleed album. Oh, interesting. And Charlie plays... The drum pattern, New Orleans style, second line, he plays it the same pattern that Jimmy plays. Okay. So why he couldn't get in in the studio and tried in the studios, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. So I don't know if that's a true story, you know, of, of yeah. uh, how Jimmy Miller, you know, came to play on it. But if you, if you listen and watch uh, the Rock and Roll, Stones Rock and Roll Circus, uh, film. Yeah. Uh, so it plays it, you know, that second line, you know, staggered, staggered back the, you know, which is yeah. you know, kind of a hallmark of uh, uh, a New Orleans groove. And, yeah, I've watched it. You know, that show, the Rock and Roll Circus loomed large in Beatles lore because um, John Lennon was in it. Sure. Um, but that's interesting that they played You Can't Always Get What You Want so much earlier than the recorded version that came out. I didn't realize that. Yeah, you know, a lot of these sessions bled into each other, mm-hmm. you know, uh, particularly for the Stones, uh, you know, tracks that were recorded for the at Olympic Studios with for the Beggar's Banquet album, you know, uh, were, you know, redone or touched up, uh, you know, for the Let It Bleed album and songs for the let it bleed sessions proper were left aside and you know touched up or overdubbed and, and you know repurposed for sticky fingers album and on and on for you know exile on main street i had songs you know dating back to 1968 69 uh, even though it came out in 72 yeah and uh so really the first well Go said Silver Train that originally came out in the Let It Bleed sessions in '69. Uh, oh, okay. Um, and after that, it was pretty much you know all new material up until you know Tattoo You, which is you know famously uh, repurposed and overdubbed and uh, you know, old, older tracks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Jimmy Miller had that the same thing that this thing about drums uh, that a lot of these you know, British guys like Chris Thomas and Bill Price uh, and Glenn Johns had, had developed and it was kind of where Charlie Charlie Watts really his sound his sound and his feel really came to the fore with Jumpin' Jack Flash single it's a very simple pattern very simple great sounding uh, record 
Oh, it's a great record. And the, Technically not a great sound record, but in terms of feel, you just can't beat it. Yeah, and the Stones never captured it, ever again live, ever. Mm-hmm. You know, the intro, the intro, ding, 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 right. ding, which is, you know, Keith's overdriven acoustic guitar, which, you know, was famously, right. you know, Street Fighting Man and other, uh, you know, was recorded around the same time. Uh, they never used that ever again. You know, even on the '69 U.S. tour. You know. Yeah. But that's interesting that both, correct me if I'm wrong, both Jumping Jack Flash and Street Fighting Man both had that overdriven acoustic guitar. Is that yes. right? Yeah. 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 And uh, so it's a it's a studio thing. It's a Frankenstein thing, and the Stones uh, have had many many tracks like that some of the mm-hmm. biggest you know war horse you know hits uh which were frankenstein tracks in the studio um you know and I, i'll just start with you know their sort of rejuvenation in 1968 with jumping jack flash that would be a classic example what came after that street fighting man again they didn't they've never played that like the record ever mm-hmm. uh, Charlie played a straight you know a straight drum pattern um, they did uh, do some sessions and some some gigs in uh, 1995 with uh, acoustics a you know, stripped album mm-hmm. uh, which is you know sort of the uh, unplugged you know thing that was you know very very much in fashion at the time right um but uh, Charlie never playing that drum pattern again. Uh, the closest they've got is Steve Jordan playing it after Charlie died. Mm-hmm. Um, there, what was it 2021 or two years ago? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Steve actually really tried to replicate uh, the exact pattern of a lot of you know, Charlie's patterns, but also the tempos too. <laughs> Right, so the great irony here is that Steve Jordan, the irony is that Steve Jordan could actually replicate better than Charlie himself the original uh, recording drum pattern. Right, now I've always wondered about that, like, what is it, did Charlie deliberately not want to do this? That could be also, right, he may have a, a way he likes to do it live that he just prefers who knows yeah oh that's his jazz you know improv jazz background maybe maybe i'm sure a lot of that comes into it Mm -hmm. Uh, nobody was going to tell him you know mick wasn't going to tell him uh certainly not keith oh charlie can you do it more like this Uh, no you know after a while after so many years or decades yeah it's like that's charlie watts he's going to play it the way he's going to play it right in the studios another thing and you're dealing with producers and engineers and, you know that's yeah, poor posterity uh, but for the live uh, setting um, no he never did in a way that's a good thing it's like okay if you want if you want to hear the record save your money and stay at home and listen to the record you know mm-hmm. bands who or artists who play replicate the stuff, you know, note for, not note for note, but, you know, just like it is on the record. Uh, it can work, and it can work well. Um, I'm thinking, like, Springsteen with the E Street Band. Right. 
but you know, I think you know they're an exception. Um, generally, it's just like, well, what's the point? Well, these days things are different. The whole zeitgeist is different. I think what people want and expect from uh, a live musical performance is uh, cleanliness. It's uh, it's really not to be surprised. It's to see in a you know a live communal setting essentially what they could be listening to at home or watching on the DVD or Blu-ray or something, you know, it's not the surprise of uh, the live performance. Um, you know, with improvisation, with liberties taken, sometimes for better or worse, like about the replacements, you know, brilliant one night, transcend, transcendent one night, and the next night they can you know, hardly finish the song, you know? Yeah. Um, no, it's an interesting point. Like, I know, like, if I go see Paul McCartney, which I've done several times, you know, the the way the drum parts are, for example, are so iconic. You know, the drum fills are played a certain way, and they're just perfect. You know, I want to hear those recreated in that way. You because know, it's just part of the artistic statement, whereas, like, certain songs that are more of a groove, like certain Stone songs, I don't know how you would feel, but I don't necessarily need it to be recreated how it was. I just want to, you know, whatever contributes to, like, a powerful live group performance is what I want to see more than anything. Uh, yeah, and is a lot of that is the, up to the aesthetic of, you know, whoever is the band leader, uh, or musical director, uh, take Springsteen and the E Street Band, Max Weinberg, Mighty Max. You're going to get those fills, those drum fills, and they're as catchy, they're as, they're as much of a hook as any other aspect, musical aspect of of the song. Right. And he does it, you know, year in, decade out, you know, uh, and that's great. And, and it works for the East Street Band. Yeah. Uh, and that's obviously Bruce. That's, you know, him calling the shots there, saying, this is what I, I want, this is what I demand. Right, because he's the boss. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. God, I hate that term. <laughs> he, he apparently hated it, too, for many years. Mm -hmm. uh, they're a very, very different band from the Stones. Yeah. Most bands are very different bands from the Stones. Um especially the Stones Live, uh, they really are still a band, you know, even though yeah. they're kind of a Stones tribute band and have been since, say, 89, uh, you know, with, you know, uh, auxiliary players and singers, um, but they're still a, a band and their sound, their aesthetic is of a band. Yeah, so a working live band, which is really cool. Uh, yeah, a working live band. And the one thing that they, even though I've gotten tighter in certain ways, they've also gotten looser in certain ways through the years. And it's a weird dichotomy. Mm -hmm. um, and, but one thing you weren't going to, you know, it's like Charlie Watts actually, you know, it kind of sounds ridiculous to say but he got better, technically better, year after year, decade after decade. Mm -hmm. And this probably isn't a guy who like practiced a lot. You know, he, he rehearsed with the Stones for you know live shows. How 
you think he you know, practices you know his drums? I, I just you know, no, he didn't. You know, he said he he, he said as much. You know, he you know, he had other projects, you know, jazz and boogie woogie projects that he'd play with. Yeah, uh, and for a drummer, it's harder because you know it can be so noisy in terms of di- disturbing the neighbors. I know Ringo famously never practiced on his own. You know, he just so what's the need to practice? You know, I, I play with my friends, and that's my practice. Right, right, yeah, a- excellent, yeah. You know, Charlie once said, you know, oh, well, tuning drum- my drums? Huh? What's the point of tuning? You're just going to bash them out of tune anyway. Well, I'm sure he's being cheeky. And- Who said that? But Charlie, Charlie Watson. Oh, Charlie, yeah, nice. Um, yeah, he's a, he's a funny guy, and it's very wry, low-key way. But uh, there's a lot of tracks, particularly the Stones and... Uh, I don't know who they're comparable with, you know, it's, it's an act of their stature, um, that were just Frankenstein tracks in the studio, and they either couldn't or didn't want to attempt to replicate them live. Um, it's only rock and roll. You know, think about that. The studio track, they never even got the, the, the rhythm pattern. They never even attempted uh, you know, even when they first started playing this on live in, in 75 with Ryan Wood, uh, they, they never attempted to uh, make it sound like it sounded like on record. Because it was a complete Frankenstein, you know, spur of the moment thing. Mm-hmm. You know, they got this appealing and you know, to me a great rhythm, basic backing track done with Kenny Jones on drums mm-hmm. with weeks on bass. Bowie on backing vocals and, you know, all, you know, Ryan Wood on guitar, uh, well, Mick on, on guitar, too. For better or worse, they never, you know, attempted to replicate live. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I don't know, back to producers, how much of that is the, uh, the producer's uh, call, uh, which would lead me to uh, one of my favorites are the Glimmer Twins, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. That you know, their production team is known as uh, the Glimmer Twins, and uh, they've been you know been referring to themselves as such since 1974. You get someone rock and roll out. Yeah. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention uh, the only other work that I'm really familiar with uh, that I, I I love as equally as his work with the Stones would be uh, a, a couple sessions he did with Johnny Thunders at Johnny's possible lowest uh, in his life and career in uh, 1982. Um, oh. Jimmy Miller was contracted to work with them. Uh, and they did some re- recording, some sessions in uh, Revere, Massachusetts, uh, with uh, the great Jerry Nolan on drums and uh, some unknown bass player, just live. They only did four tracks. And uh, then uh, Johnny disappeared. 
okay. uh, of ginormous want to do. Well, they picked up the sessions again uh, later and recorded a further five tracks without Jerry Nolan with uh, some young drummer. And these sound more like Jane Miller productions. They actually sound like his work with the Stones. Mm. And then Jimmy Miller disappeared. Apparently his, uh, his drug usage was uh, on par with Giant Thunders at that point. And the feature of particularly the second sessions is once again this great, fat, rich, murky sound. Uh, Johnny Thunders actually played bass on those second sessions. Uh, uh, which is his original instrument, actually. Uh, but Jimmy Miller would be adding... Uh, the drum sound was impeccable, uh, very forceful and thick, and the percussion, the percussion that Miller would add would be as vital to a track, just like with the Stones. Mm-hmm. The tambourine, the cowbell, up front and center, you know, the maracas, you know, right there in your face. And when that was released, that album? Yeah, it was. It's called In Cold Blood, and it was only five songs, and they did a... Uh, it was re- released on a French label, some fly-by-night French label, and uh, uh, it was a, a 45, a 12-inch 45, and the second album was, you know, just some, you know, live tracks, you know. Johnny playing around around the East Coast. Uh, okay, that's there. cool. I didn't realize that. Uh, but the five tracks, well, actually, they record six tracks uh, uh, that he did uh, for the Encore Blood album. So it's a mini album. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just really punchy. They sound like the Stones in 1972, uh, sonically, sonically. And a lot of that is to do with Jimmy Miller's drum and percussion sensibilities. Um, yeah, that's cool. One of the surprises I came across researching Steve Lillywhite is that he produced So Alone by Johnny Thunders, which is a great album. That would lead me to, <coughs> excuse me, to Steve Lillywhite. Yeah, um, that is a great album, and that's where I became familiar with, with Lillywhite. Mm-hmm. Uh, his name really, really didn't register until a few years later. You know, I bought the album in 70, 1978 in real time, you know, in you know, an import copy, you know, Gem Records, remember them? Yeah, we um, talked about them last time. Right, right. Uh, but, you know, later when he started working with uh, U2 and then shortly after that, uh, Big Country. And um, the thing with Lily White. It was this great, expansive, I want to call it a cinematic sound, which certainly Jimmy Miller had as well, but uh, Lily White, um, it could be equally murky, but also very live and bright. Think about U2's debut album, Boy. Yeah, that's. I always associate there's a certain brightness, like when I hear Sparkle in the Rain by Simple Minds or Boy, you know, and I think that's one reason it sounds great if you played it on like you know a small radio or a big system. It sounds great on both because he's got that nice bright high end to, to his best productions. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like he was channeling the the big 
you know, the, the, the Phil Spector, the, the, the Motown, uh, you know, aspects of production, you know, the, you know, the large, sparkly, magical, uh, sonic experience. Um, and he certainly had that with, uh, on U2's, you know, debut boy. Um, and just weird little noises. I, I, I should mention a lot of these people that I've mentioned, Chris Thomas, Bill Price, um, uh, Jimmy Miller, and Steve Lillywhite, they all featured weird little noises in their, in their uh, productions. Yeah, which I love. I, 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 yeah, I do too. I mean, just the personality behind it. And then like the I bottles, the bottles rolling and um, I will follow. Uh, for example sure exactly exactly that's what I'm talking about and then, then the next album which is a little muddier and murkier uh, murkier uh, October yeah by uh, you too Gloria you know the breakdown in that you know right. uh, the bass breakdown as it leads back into the final chorus a coffee cup fell or a tea cup fell on the floor or a saucer and it didn't break, but it rolled around, and you hear this. By mistake. By mistake. Okay, yeah, that sounds so great. I didn't, I didn't realize that was a mistake. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah, and they, you know, literally like kept it on there, and you know, treated it, you know, with sound. So it's, it's as much of a hook as anything else in the song, uh, and the, with his best work. Um, I just love that. Uh, the just strange frequencies, you know, expanding his work on Simple Mind, uh, Sparkle in the, the Rain, uh, you know, Mel Gaynor's, you know, symbols, you know, giving him a weird, like, reverse delay or something. You know, mm -hmm. like, uh, like, well, who would think of this? What were you thinking, you know? Um, his work with Big Country, who actually probably didn't really need they had their own sound from the get-go they didn't need you know chris thomas had their very first single however's tone mm -hmm. um we talked about this last time it's a very different style and sound uh even tempo and arrangement from uh steve lillywood's re-recorded version for the uh, the crossing the debut album mm -hmm. uh but they probably benefited least from a producer because they had such an identifiable sound. They were much better musicians and, uh, say, then, and technically uh, better musicians, and they had more experience, musical experience, than, say, U2. Um, yeah. Their first album, they were still young, no, a few years younger, and... Uh, uh, they just didn't have the skill and the chops. Really, they were just they were, you know, discovering their their own sound in real time. Um, but his work with Big Country's first two albums and the Wonderland EP uh, are just they're majestic to me. They're just majestic sound, and yeah. the sound that he got with uh, Mark Brzezicki and Tony Butler's rhythm section. Um, you know, that very mid-rangey tone that uh, Tony Butler had on bass, and playing these 
intricate but very catchy almost you know, guitar-like bass lines you know in you know, frequently you know celtic uh, uh you know, a celtic modal manner um you know one thing i never thought about before is how did these kind of provincial quote-unquote musicians of Stuart Adamson and Mark Brzezicki convinced these studio pros of Mark Brzezicki and Tony Butler to join their band. Do you know how that happened? Um, in the case of Big Country, the, they had, they tried, they had a different rhythm section uh, originally. And I actually have uh, some demos, which basically sound like the skids. Okay. The previous band. Um, uh, very Euro sounding, very, uh, mm -hmm. um, and rhythm section isn't particularly impressive, but you know, they're very punchy, very cool. And I can't remember the guy's name. So, uh, they had a keyboard, keyboards as well. Um, they actually tried out originally Stuart and Bruce Watson, who, who's the jam drummer, uh, Rick Buckler. Okay. That would have been great. Uh, I don't know if he would have been the right, you know, fit for the band, but you know. Yeah. Uh, so the big country, in their early, earliest lineup supported the Jam on their final UK tour in '82, mm -hmm. um, and uh, obviously, you know, that's probably where uh, Bruce and Stewart, uh, you know, met up with uh, Rick Buckler, and of course the Jam imploded broke up after that yeah uh, i've never heard any recordings or demos uh that they did with rick buckler on drums but uh uh they did some they did some shows uh with uh this other rhythm section and they're pretty good they're pretty damn good uh, one of the shows isn't very high quality it's like at a youth center somewhere in, uh dumb for line i think or you know for Aberdeen somewhere in Scotland and they actually opened for I don't know who put this bill together Alice Cooper uh, early on and uh, I guess played a few shows with them uh, in you know England or Scotland somewhere in, in, in the UK and uh, uh, Alice Cooper's road manager decided that Big Country were just too weird and so they kicked him off the tour. <laughs> yeah. We'll talk about a musical mismatch, but, yeah. you know, back to Big Country. I, you know, that first album, The Crossing, is a great sounding record, but I thought Steel Town was a, also a great sounding record, their second one. Uh, yeah, those are both Steve Lillywhite. Right. And uh, they recorded that one at Abba Studio in, in, in Sweden. Oh, okay, uh, interesting. Stockholm, I think it's called Polar or Polaris Studio. I don't know if it still exists, but... Um, another, um, not... Is there anything else you want to say about Big Country? Oh, well, uh, just if, if you... Just to finish your point, how, how these provincial... and Yes, they were provincial. Uh, Stuart was actually born in Manchester, not in Scotland. Uh, mm -hmm. And we moved there very young. Uh, and Bruce is actually uh, born in Canada. <laughs> mm -hmm. not, not in Scotland, and the uh, family moved back to Scotland. To and not to slight... Uh, Stuart uh, or Bruce in any way because their skill was not provincial but I'm just saying you know how studio musicians of the caliber of Tony and Mark might have perceived them at the time 
They were uh, Tony and Mark were called Rhythm for Hire, and they right. you know, played on Townsend's, you know, solo date right. Empty Glass, and uh, um, there were, you know, probably other people I, I don't know about around, you know, 1980, 81. They were, you know, big in London and uh, in demand, and I forget how the meeting came about, but apparently it was one of those things like their first, you know, rehearsal. Uh, just like I said, you guys are it. Um, and it may have been like an Andy Summers kind of situation. Like Andy Summers was a big, uh, highly paid session musician at the time he joined the police, but he was smart enough to see like the wave, the new wave, quote unquote, that was coming. And he really wanted to be part of a cool band. You know, and there's something to be said for, you know, some of these studio musicians, um, you know, it could get a little boring, I think, being just this, a paid gun for hire, and it's fun to be part of a band. Uh, yeah. Uh, the thing with uh, Stuart and Bruce, uh, you know, the guitar players, um, is they, they were very advanced, technically, as musicians. Yeah. On their instruments, and they were interested, you know, look at the skids, uh, you know, the four albums they did. Uh, it's really intricate. You know, it's muso, to coin a phrase, mm -hmm. uh, playing. Um, they also had, you know, particularly Stuart, this massive energy and, and he this great majestic sound and tone in his playing. Uh, I think after he died, it's either Joe Strummer or Mick Jones said uh, uh, that the Skids were the only band that ever opened for The Clash that made The Clash nervous to, to go on stage. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Interesting. This kid's opening for them somewhere in Aberdeen or somewhere in Scotland. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't know how how uh, Mark and Tony, uh, you know, Tony's a you know, first generation Jamaican from St Andrews Parish in Jamaica, uh, outside Kingston, uh, which is ironic, but considering that you know St St Andrews is the patron saint of Scotland, and his family moved to London. And Tony Butler. Uh, Mark Brzezinski, his dad was uh, in the the Polish, the free RAF Air Force in World War II. And, okay. Uh, escaped Poland and then joined, uh, uh, you, know, you know, the British Army. And they had infantry, army units as well, but they also had uh, a wing of uh, in the RAF, uh, Royal Air Force. Mm -hmm. His dad was uh, a pilot in the... Uh, so, and Mark was, you know, first generation Paul, uh, uh, or second generation, uh, I guess. And yeah. So, just an interesting combination of, like, where did these guys all come from, you know? And, of course, Stuart and uh, uh, Bruce, neither of them were actually born in, 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 in Scotland. Are you talking about Bebop Deluxe now? 
Oh, I'm talking about the skids. Oh, skids, uh, yeah. But you can hear uh, the uh, early, you know, influences into big country proper. Yeah. Know, the, uh, no, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I know the Saints are calling um, and a few other things, but I didn't know there were as muso-ish um, and as musical musically intricate as you're describing them so i'm gonna to have to go back and listen i it's interesting you mentioned bebop deluxe because um, one of the producers we can talk about later i have on here is john lecky who produced mm -hmm. um bebop deluxe yeah 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 i know lecky uh yeah he did a lot of great work well he did uh, early uh, simple minds uh, uh albums um uh, yeah, okay, so uh, enough about Big Country, uh, over to you. What, yeah, uh, okay, well, let's, let's finish up. I've got a list here um, of other Steve Lillywhite highlights, so let me just hit a few of them. Um, the Laws, you know, There She Goes, you know that song, There She Goes Again. Yeah, that's Lillywhite? That's um, Steve Lillywhite, according to my um, notes here. No, I guess it wouldn't surprise me. You know, he had, you know, work Personnel. Okay, Lee Mayer Production. Steve Lillywhite. Yeah, okay. So, you know, that's an interesting band because that album, that whole album is like almost like a perfect, like, pop record. And Lee Mavers just, like, hung it up after that. But so I just wanted to mention that as part of Steve Lillywhite's credits. Um, he did. Sushi, Susie and the Banshees Hong Kong Garden single um, the he's credited along with Hugh Padgham who was you know produced the last two police albums with um, on Peter Gabriel's third album with that gated reverb sound that would define the 80s yeah well he did XTC too he did XTC drums and wires he did like as you mentioned he did the first three U2 albums he did how to dismantle the atomic bomb. Um, he did no line. No line. He was a co-producer along with others of No Line on the Horizon by U2, which is an overlooked, very good U2 album. Um, he did. The, he also, yeah, he worked on uh, along with Eno and Daniel Lanois on uh, Achtung Baby uh, as well. Boy, there, there's a producer's dream right there. You know. Uh, Lenoir and Lulu um, so Yeah, you're right. I think they got stuck at a certain point on Octoon Baby and they came to Steve Lillywhite for a few things. Yeah, um, yeah. Big Country, The Chameleons, uh, Morrissey's, uh, some of Morrissey's solo albums, um, The Rolling Stones, uh, Simple Minds, Fairy Tale in New York by The Pogues. Well, I did two albums with, with, with The Pogues, yeah. Yeah. And two albums, so I I just wanted to uh, the first psychedelic furs album. First two. First two, yeah. so just wanted to cover those with Steve before we moved on. Uh yeah, well no, not so fast, not so fast there, Reverend. Yeah. Um, you know, one one of my favorite Little productions is another just. You know, favorite album of mine. You only did one, and the band only put out one. They recorded a second one, but it wasn't released till years later. And that would be Sector Twenty Seven. Okay, you what's know? that? So it's Tom Robinson's band after the Tom Robinson oh, okay. band broke up. 
And they only did one album, came out in 1980, and it's just called Sector 27. And it is, it's really cool. It's everything you want from Lily White production, but you don't have the grandeur and the glory of U2 and Big Country and Simple Minds Sparkle in the Rain. Mm-hmm. It's really dark and uh, it's a very emotional album. It's not cheery like the Tom Robinson band and it's, it sounds nothing like the traditional you know, rock and roll of Tom Robinson band. So what's it called again? Sector 27. Okay. And it's a wonderful album. Every song is just a a revelation. Uh, Tom doesn't play bass. He's got, I can't remember, Joel Bird uh, play. Just a strange little three-piece band. They only, they did some shows with the police in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, That's a good one. Good catch. Uh, and it's classic Lily White production. The weird noises and effects abound. It's weirder than anything on those first three U2 albums, the first two big country albums. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of his finest productions. Mm-hmm. I don't know about a lot of his later work. I know he, he, some of the albums he did with his future wife, uh, the great, late, great Kirsty McCall, which are very wonderful sounding records because she's just wonderful as, as a songwriter, as a singer, right. as an arranger. Now, Steve had initially, he had said early on that he would never produce a band more than twice. Mm-hmm. We broke this rule with you too, with the War album. Right. Uh, because for whatever reasons, because they were so great or because the money was good or he thought there was really something that was developing that he could get, you know, work with. Um, and, you know, he only did two albums with, uh, with Big Country well, mm-hmm. and the Wonderland EP as well. But So, wait, 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 okay, yeah, yeah. What, uh, I've got a good transition point from Lily White if we're done with Lily White. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, what do you got? I think uh, Brian Eno would be a good transition because we were talking about U2 and, and some there's some similar cross crossovers there. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's a big deal. He's a big deal. I mean, not just as an artist, but his aesthetic as a producer. Yeah, yeah. he's a big deal. Yeah, what do you want to... You got anything you want to say about him as an intro? Um, his... Uh, we were talking, speaking earlier of uh, you know, mixers versus engineers, you know, but, uh, recording in real time. Uh, Eno had a, I don't think, I think maybe pioneered it, maybe with Roxy Music, uh, certainly with a couple of John Cale's mid-70s uh, tracks, if not full albums, of actually recording mixing in real time in other words moving the faders mm-hmm. and the bet in during the actual performance of the track oh interesting and you know by his own description is not a musician i say that's bs but 
that was, you know, kind of his, you know, his line for many years, if not decades. Right. Is I'm not a real musician. I don't really play anything. Right. Um, so one of the things, you know, spawned some great producers, some great, you know, sound auteurs or sound sculptors, you know, Daniel Lenoir, you know. Right. Uh, uh, being the most obvious. And one of his things that Lenoir got from Eno was playing the studio as an instrument. Now, a lot of people do that. You know, they like a good room, you know, a big room or a room with great sound. You know, Keith Richards say, I can walk into a room, snap my fingers, and tell if it's a good room to put you know, play mm-hmm. Well, that's, you know, Keith, you know, his usual hyperbole, hyperbole, hyperbole. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that word again. Um, but, you know, actually, I think revolutionized uh, recording or his technique pioneered that idea of using say lavalier mics and finding the the, the sensitive spots of a room a recording room what uh, kind of mics microphones lavalier mics they're little bitty mics people use them for like recording on uh, like interviews on tv they're oh okay ultra sensitive uh little microphones, little tiny things, and they, they pick up their design for very small, specific uh, recording locations, meaning on somebody's lapel, on their suit, on TV or something. Mm-hmm. And Eno would use those at different spots of a room to uh, mic the room. Mm-hmm. And Lenoir picked up on that, and he actually... That became Lenoir's signature sound. Mm-hmm. The big um, reverby, swampy New Orleans type of thing. Yeah, well, I say New Orleans, but you can say you know Canada too, where he's from. Both have sure. French influence. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's a French thing. I, I, but that's uh, something Lenoir got from uh, from Eno mm-hmm. and. Um, Lenoir needs uh, a mention here. I don't know. I don't want to go off too much of a track because Lenoir's uh, sound and work has kind of fallen out of favor with me. Yeah, uh, me too. Be a little. I've I've become weary of it. I am. You know, the classic example would be the the recent uh, Bob Dylan bootleg series. Uh, remix of his Time Out of Mind album, which you know, was a big deal when it came out, it won a Grammy, and all oh, this is Bob's you know, rejuvenation and all that, and yeah, it's a great album. Um, I always thought it was a little too, not a little, but a lot, too Daniel Lenoir-ish, as yeah. opposed to the earlier album he did with Dylan, you know, Old Mercy. Yeah. Uh, more stripped down, uh, more to the point, and uh, I think the the uh, remixed version where they took a lot of Lenoir's uh, outboard effects uh, out of the mix is uh, the superior album. Yeah, I'm gonna have to listen to that. I 
I find Oh Mercy, you know, there's a lot of lightweight songs on there that aren't as great. The songs are better on Time Out of Mind, but I'd love to hear the the new version without as much of the effects just to I, see how it sounds. So Time Out of Mind. Yeah, I agree with you about Oh Mercy. I think uh, half the album is, is just very slight. Uh, oh Mercy, there's just too many atmospheric ballads. Yeah. That uh, just for me don't go anywhere but the songs that are great you know uh, most of the time political world uh everything is broken <laughs> are great and the sound sonically is great yeah well i think he overdid it years later with town out of mind and it, it just uh, those sessions went on forever uh, a couple different studios in miami and uh didn't see eye to eye a lot of the time. It was arguing. Um, yeah, we can let's loop back to Brian Eno just to stick with Lanois for a second. I've yeah. got on my list for him. Yeah, he's one of my listed producers because he worked with um, Brian Eno on the Apollo soundtrack, which is a great ambient album. And it's got. A lot, what a lot of people overlook on that album is there's a country influence. Uh, there's a lot of pedal steel that is not often heard in ambient music. It doesn't surprise me with Eno. You know, his, his musical tastes and influences were very Catholic, very, very wide-ranging, yeah. Yeah. You uh, 2 again, this is like co You know, lines get blurry here, but just stick with me. Unforgettable Fire, Octum Baby... No Line on the Horizon. Uh, Peter Gabriel So, he was a co-producer. Um, Emmylou Harris, Wrecking Ball. You know, he, I think one of his maybe um, negative, one of his criticisms is he only had like one major type of sound, but the epitome of the greatness of his sound could be Emmylou Harris's Wrecking Ball, which is a, a great record. Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. Willie Nelson has a great record. He did a great record with Willie Nelson called Teatro, which um, that's what it was called, where he recorded that album. I've heard of the album. I don't think I've ever heard it. It's a great, I highly recommend it. And then I, we talked about this one, uh, Lynn Noise by Neil Young, where um, he was recording all these cool, like, you know, more distorted electric guitar type of, Neil Young guitar. That's a that's a really fun record. Yeah, just just Neil on uh, you know right on guitar. No no band. No right guitar. right. Yeah, capturing the performance in real time. You cut out there for a second, but you're saying you capture the performance in real time. But playing the performance, twiddling knobs, moving faders uh, yeah. in real time as Neil played. And oh okay. Easier with just one one guy. Uh, as opposed to a band or a small combo. Uh, but yeah, uh, I noticed you did not put probably his biggest, the most lucrative and famous work, uh, you choose Joshua Tree. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of that record. That's I purposely um, didn't put that on there. Yeah, now, you, 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 you've said that before. And, uh, like the, the certain things on there I really do like that really moved me at the time, like Red Hill Mining Town. Uh, yeah. As opposed to like the big hits. Yeah, well, the big hits are just overplayed. But yeah, when it 
I, I'm in agreement with you. Uh, the B-sides from that... B-sides were great. ...are largely better than most of the else. I would agree with you there. Uh, yeah, yeah, Silver and Gold, you know, the yep. original studio version. Uh, there were several. Uh, they're just really, really... Well, they're weird. They're weird. They could have been on the Unforgettable Flyer. Yep. You know? They're not, you know. And that was that was the fun thing about buying. Like, I think you had to buy the twelve inches at the time, right, of the hits to hear those yeah, weird yeah. B sides. Right, exactly. Yeah, I had them all. I think there's three uh, for the for the singles, and then yeah. had like two or three uh, B sides on them. Uh, yeah. Um, no denying, he's a, he's a, a great. He, uh, unlike a lot of producers or engineers. Uh, Lenoir is, you know, a very, very fine musician and multi-instrumentalist in his own style. That's right. He, he added, um, you know, tracks to U2 records and probably other records and very meticulous. You know, I, I saw some documentary where he's working on Peter Gabriel's So and you know, he's such like a, a meticulous craftsman. You know, each sound is just so carefully thought out and, you know, kudos to him for that. And a fine singer too. Yeah. Uh, you have the fine voice. Uh, oh yeah. The the what is it the to the beauty of to Winona? That's a great record of his. Yeah, those first two solo solo albums. Excuse me. Yeah. Uh, uh, beauty of Winona and I forget Arcadia. I think was the first yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, which featured you uh, two or you know, Larry and Adam uh, Right. Except, uh, a couple tracks. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, he's, uh, at one point, he would have been my favorite producer ever of all time. Mm -hmm. uh, just, you know, his overall encompassing vision thing uh, for music. Uh, how he just totally put his, his own stamp, his own mark on whatever, you know, uh, recordings he did. Um, and now I'm thinking these days it, it could be a liability in some cases. It's just like I, it's just too much long. Uh, I, I I'm, I'm sure he's a fine gentleman, and you know, and he, you know, one, one of the greatest you know sound uh, producers really of our generation or any generation. But I don't know. Does he have any new tricks? You know. Could Taylor Swift use Daniel Lenoir on an album? And if so, how would it work? Would it appeal to the Swifties? Would it appeal to the, you know, serious sonic, uh, uh, you know, connoisseurs? Of, yeah, well, he's still, I know he's still going. I saw an interview with him recently in, in his studio, and he's, he's still got it going on. Yeah, well, more power to him. He's getting work, and, you know... No records. Uh, you know, it's uh, it must be an odd occupation. Like, what does your resume say? What's your CV say? You know, record producer. Right. I mean, well, what could that mean? Guy Stevens he was supposedly the producer of Woman Gone. What did he do? He drank and fell down and threw stuff around. You know, threw chairs around the studio. I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah but as as an output, I mean. It's hard for me to think of a better sounding record than London Calling. I just love the sound of that record. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's Bill Price. Mm -hmm. you know? It Price. sounds so great, doesn't it? I mean, just everything about it. Yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, it really is. The drums, the percussion, the guitars, everything. Yeah. Well, you know, Mick Jones learning very fast in real time. You yeah. Know? Mick, Mick Jones is a great producer in his own right. The sound of the room, the sound of the band, the energy of the band just comes through. And they leave all the, you know, that's when you really got got to know that this is a this is a band that puts the play into playing. Yeah. They're playful. They were funny. Yeah. Clash were a very funny, very clever band, but not just funny lyrically or thematically. You know, people think they're all serious political band, you know, punk band, you know, all that's nonsense to me. You know, political, they're about as political as Muddy Waters, you know? Yeah. Well, just uh, think about Jimmy Jazz, you know, you got all that, like, people talking in the background, and, you know, they're just having fun with it. Sonic, Sonic playfulness, Sonic yeah. humor. You know, think of all the little odd, you know, twists and turns and sounds that came out of, on that album. I mean, it was yeah, yeah, the percussion, the sounds, that's a big part of that album. Oh, yeah, yeah, and, you know, willing, willingness to, you know, well, we're a punk fan, we're supposed to be in whatever punk rock meant to, you know, kids in, in the UK in 1979. Uh, Yeah, they're just a band at the height of their powers, and they could do whatever they wanted. It really comes through. Think of all the horrible, horrible music that came out, well, to my ears, and maybe have a different take, that came out of the so-called, you know, punk movement, you know, the oi band, you know? Right. Those hardcore bands, and, and, and in the U.S., you know, the... You know, the West Coast hardcore bands, you know. Uh, you know, just like bad music, bad attitude, bad, bad politics, bad, you know, just bad, just downer music, you know. It's like, no, that's not punk rock is about. Punk rock is about having no boundaries. No right. boundaries. And speaking of no boundaries, maybe we should loop back to Brian Eno at this point. Uh, yep, go for it, yeah. So I've got, again, you know, a lot of these records, it's blurry, like, who is officially the producer, because, you know, there's co-production and so forth, but, and with Brian Eno, you know, I'm trying to stick solely to, like, production as opposed to, you know, where he played, like, keyboards on Roxy Music Records, for example, so. Yeah. Uh, but for production or co-production, um, Unforgettable Fire, you know, right there, that record, that was a whole new universe for you two. And they really, you know, as opposed to most bands, I think would have tried to got us, get as popular as they could at that point, they really went experimental with Eno. Um, you know, Pride in the Name of Love, yeah, okay, that was kind of going for a hit, but 
a lot of those other songs were almost like improvisations of Bono just making lyrics up on the mic and the the effects and then Octung Babies, Europa, No Line on the Horizon, all great U2 records where, you know, this fifth member idea we talked about with the Beatles, it, he almost became like a fifth member of, of U2 in a way. Oh, very much so, yeah. The last, uh, U2, U2 I, I lost track of more or less uh, after the Europa, which is, you know, credited entirely to, to Eno. There's no one one on it. Um, and that was the album that I kind of, you know, lost me. I've, I've heard great things, you know, after that, but I, I just kind of lost interest. And yeah. still, you know, a, a fine band, and, uh, you know, I'll just leave it at that. They kind of lost. And, yeah, I have, you know, heard and owned, like, a, you know, all that you can't leave behind. You know, that was a, a, a nice album. I don't know if it was the great album or the great return form that everybody thought it was. I just, they, they've lost me. But no, like I, I'm, I just want to give a special mention to No Line on the Horizon, which I know he was involved with, which is a really good record. That's the one that's got like the the black and white ocean photograph on the cover. I I know the record. I know the I know the album cover because I see it in the in the used record bins. Yeah. Cheapo records. Uh, yeah, I I can't remember any song from it, and I yeah, it didn't have a lot of hits, but it's a very solid um, one of the better Utila records. And then back to Eno, again, <clears throat> you know, lines are blurry here because Visconti was involved. Um, Eno is involved, but Bowie, the, the Berlin trilogy, Low, Heroes, and Lodger, you know, uh, um, Eno was largely responsible for you know, helping Bowie define a new sound. You know, Low is just such an exciting record and really kind of set the tone in a way for like post punk in a lot of ways. Uh, yeah, it did. And uh, yeah, and oddly enough, Bowie got a pass from the punks, at least in the UK, during that period, which is ironic considering yeah. side side two of, of low, you know, the instrumental side. Um, I actually think that's an overrated album. Um, the sound sonically, though, is just wonderful. It's wonderful, and uh, Heroes is even better, and the better album. See, I, I think Low is by far the best of those three, but it's such a subjective thing. Hey, well, it is. Uh, Lodger, to me, I think it's uh, the best album. It's the most playful, the weirdest. Miscotti mm -hmm. uh, did a full remix because it was a very murky mix. Right, uh, that was a problem with that originally, yeah. Yeah, he did a full-on remix, which is, you know, it, it's you know, day and night. It's like, But uh, that's, yeah. That's the, the weirdest. Mm -hmm. And what, what is Brian Eno if not weird? You know, he's right. also beautiful too and playful and, you know, nursery rhyme like melodies, some of his own. His first two albums, solo albums, are just no perfect, every track. Yeah, and he's uh, bringing like, even though he, like you say, like he's more musical than he lets on. You know, he's really bringing like an artistic sensibility. He is famous for like those oblique strategy cards where like 
you come up with you know new ways to imagine that you're playing um the other things he did later on like he worked with Coldplay he did um you know, early, around the time of Bowie, he did uh, Devo, Are We Not Men. He did, A few years later, he did Talking Heads, Remain in Light. Uh, all kinds of interesting stuff he did. He did uh, three John Cale uh, solo albums in the uh, mid-70s. Uh, uh, Fear, uh, Helen of Troy, mm-hmm. and uh, Slow Dazzle. Uh, yeah, Fear, I know, that's a great record. There's a song on there called Gun, and it's a long song, Phil Manzanera from Roxy Music on guitar. And it's, you know, a long, like, six, seven-minute song. It's a really creepy, really hard, brutal song. And uh, Eno is treating Manzanera's guitar in real time as they were playing with his, his weird little suitcase of, you know, things that you plug in and <laughs> whatever you know, back then that you know had as his, his little magic bag of tricks oh okay uh, interesting and uh, speaking of Kale Kale's no slouch he, he's uh, the producer uh, I guess some of Kale's uh, you know yeah go for it well Pat Smith's debut um, yeah that's that's a great uh, record Pulses. Uh, the Stooges debut, Grand Rocker, which I actually think is a little overrated, you know, considering the next two albums were just, you know, over the top. Mm-hmm. Uh, and both very different from each other and different from, you know, Kale's original production. Uh, a personal favorite of mine, Jonathan Richman and the Modern Lovers, first album. Great sounding record. Great sounding. It was recorded as, you know, just demos and wasn't released till like, you know, four or five years. And it sounds so contemporary uh, even today. You know, it's got, but it's got that kind of fresh, like, new wave punk kind of sensibility, but it was recorded in 72. It's way ahead of its time. Oh, yeah, yeah. Think about the strokes and, you know, the great success they had. Yeah. That's all the modern lovers right there. Yeah. Good point. Uh, Jerry Harrison from the Talking Heads on keys. Uh, uh, David Brooks on bass. Uh, uh, Chris, uh, uh, not Chris Robinson. He's the Black Crows guy. Who's a? Uh, oh, he's a Cars drummer. Uh, what's his name? David Robinson. Yeah. So all these guys went on to you know bigger and better things. You know mm-hmm. later in the modern lovers, but. Uh, it, as you say, it does. It sounds like it could have been recorded five minutes ago. You know, just right. stripped on basic, you know, not pretending to be on big, big production or anything, just the songs and pure personality. Yeah. Yeah, no, um, good call. Got to mention that. Yeah. He's done, he did a couple albums with, with Eno, too. Uh, one from, I think, 1990 called The Wrong Way Up. It's a straight up collaboration with uh, him and Eno. It's a delightful album. Mm-hmm. Uh, Half the songs are Eno and half are Kales, and they both work on each other's songs. And just the two of them, maybe one other two musicians, you mm-hmm. know, adding uh, flavor here and there. Um, that's a really good one, uh, you know, Kale and Eno. Nice. Uh, yeah, okay. So, Brian Eno. 
no, no slouch as a musician, as as a, a creator of a vibe, creator of sounds. And now on a on a related note, because um, it's kind of in the same wheelhouse, we should mention Tony Visconti, I think, because you know they work sure. together, you know, and Visconti on the Berlin trilogy. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, as a producer, uh, the T Rex records, that's Visconti. Talk about great sounding records. Yeah, well, he did you know uh, several Bowie albums as well. He did um, well, yeah. Now. I, I made some notes about this. He did um, the first Bowie album, uh, self-titled. He did Man Who Sold the World. He did... He's a bass player on that, too, as well. He's he the Spiders from Mars. He's the Spiders from Mars original bass player on uh, Man Who Sold the World. Right, and then he kind of took a break for a few albums, and then he came back with the Berlin Trilogy. Well, no, he came back with, personally, my favorite, probably my favorite Bowie album, Diamond Dogs. Oh, Diamond Dogs, okay. Bowie's first post-Spiders from Mars album. Okay, right, right, good point. Ken Scott had done the three Spiders from Mars albums, Hunky Dory. Right, right. Aladdin. Yeah, uh, good good catch. Um, a, a great producer in his own right, Ken Scott. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, Ber- okay, back to Visconti, Berlin Trilogy, uh, Scary Monsters... And then the later Bowie albums, Heathen, Reality, Next Day, and Black Star. Uh, Black Star, um, you know, that last album he did with a lot of the jazz musicians, that's a, a beautiful sounding record. It really is. Yeah, it really is. It's uh, not an easy one, or one that I listen to a lot. Um, not just for sentimental reasons, because like it's the actual sound of the guy dying in real time. Right. That and composing and arranging it. Um, but yeah, it's a great sounding record. And the one right before it, The Next Day. Next Day is a great record. Great yeah, pop, yeah. more like really a pop, great pop record, almost. It's a, yeah, exactly. It's like almost every song could have been on the radio. Yeah. You know? uh, yeah. Biscotti, yeah, great, great musician, great producer. Uh, a few other uh, fun records he did. He did some records with uh, Dean and um, Britta from Luna. I've heard of Luna. Uh, and Dean, um, the the leader of uh, Luna, um, I'm forgetting his last name, and his wife Britta, the bass player from Luna. Um, he They did some solo records uh, produced by Visconti and also uh, Differed and Tilbrook from Squeeze. He did their... The record they did is different in Tilbrook, which is a good record. Yeah. Dean yeah. Wareham. Uh, Sorry, that, that was his name from Luna. What is it? Dean Wareham. Oh, right. I've heard of him. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Luna. I know Lou Reed really liked them. He thought they were the uh, the closest thing to, to developing the, uh, capturing the, the Velvet Underground's kind of essence. That's right. They definitely were. Maybe the the softer uh, side of the velvets, like yeah, the, like the uh, the rhythmic strummy side of the velvets. They just developed that par excellence. Yeah, yeah. Lou apparently really liked that. Um, um, we have not mentioned Bob Clermont, and we probably should. Yeah, go for it. Well, uh, primarily a mixer. Um, he once uh, said uh, in the uh, 
documentary Blood Brothers about the East Street Gang reunion in 1995. <clears throat> they they recorded a few songs in the studio for a, a Greatest Hits album, Springsteen Greatest Hits album. They said, you know, I, I'm basically a, a mixer by trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, he thankfully yeah, co-produced uh, with Steve Anzant, Bruce, and John Landau, uh, you know, but he mixed, you know, born in the USA out. Uh, but worked with Bruce quite a bit. But he said, I hate to give the Eastern band so much credit, because this is my job, but he said, they almost mix themselves in real time mm-hmm. as they're playing. Wow. such as their experience with each other. That, you know, somebody would drop in, Roy would drop in, and Danny would, you know, um, uh, the B3 would come in, or, you know, a guitar would come in for a little bit, you know. Yeah, because that's, that's the benefit of a band playing so well together. It almost reminds me of those old, those first recordings where you'd have one microphone, and uh, you'd have to place everything just in the right distance from it, and the band would just be playing in real time almost. Right, right. Uh, you'd have to learn how to play with the other players. Right. You'd have to mix yourself in real time. Yeah. Um, but Bob was saying that in relation to his primary, you know, gig, which was yeah, a mixer. But he produced as a yeah, producer. He's produced, you know, and uh, some of my favorite records. Um, yeah, he did the. The 12 inch, the long version of the Stones Miss You uh, from the Some Girls album, mm-hmm. uh, which is, yeah, wonderful. And you know, basically, you just jack up the bass and drums, but there's, it's a full performance of the song without the edge. So it's not, uh, but anyway, uh, uh, Garland Jeffries, Escape Artist from 1981, uh, just a wonderful sounding album, uh, The Churches second album, Blur Crusade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this big, booming sound. It still sounded live. It sounded like... Yeah, it's a great sounding record. record. Even today, it sounds very good. That, that aged very well. Yeah, well, it sounds, uh, I, I think, it sounds organic, uh, but it's clearly artificial. It's clearly something of the studio. It's like, mm-hmm. no, drums don't sound like that in real, in real life, mm-hmm. but it's... Um, but he, he, uh, just a great knack for pulling out just the sounds, the instruments, uh, in, in a section, just the right things at the right time. Yeah. Uh, he made very loud records, loud sounding records. Even yeah. if his stereo is at low volume, they sounded big. Yeah, I always so, think of him as like, he's got a big, punchy sound. Yes, very <laughs> much so. Uh, so yeah, Bob Clearmountain, yeah, great, great sound engineer, and uh, clearly a guy with great, uh, you know, artistic sensibilities as as far as shaping sound for yeah you know, a band and artist. Uh, I, I'm gonna have to throw in <coughs> Leonard Chess from Chess Records here. Yeah, uh, it's a big deal, you know. Yeah, good one. You know? Marshall Chess would go on to work with the Stones, not really in a production, it's more of, I don't know, he's a stage manager, a tour manager or something, general, mm-hmm. general dog's body, I think, is the uh, 
Which would say, uh, but think of what Leonard Chess brought the world at Chess Studios. Um, and uh, so, yeah, uh, I'm, now Bill Price, I mean, we haven't really, you know, touched on any, his name's come up a lot. Uh, what do you think of Bill? What's, what's the take there? Uh, a big guy, primarily, originally, you know, an engineer. Yeah, now I, I ran into some, um, real challenges researching him um to you know like on wikipedia for example a lot of people you can go to wikipedia and clearly see like what they produced uh with bill price that's not the case but let me let me show you what i here here's some things that i found um pretenders um with chris thomas producing he mixed those first uh, Pretenders 1, Pretenders 2, the EP, and Learning to Crawl. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. Those are my favorite Pretenders records. So Uh, let's give him kudos for that, even though we're talking about producers, because that just goes so hand-in-hand with the sound and the production of those records, right? Again, there's... He had that same quality of a lot of guys we've mentioned here, from Chris Thomas to, you know, Lily White, uh, certainly Eno Lindemar. Guy who appreciated noise weird little noises yeah. and textures yeah, he just had a, had a great ear for the textures um, also mixing the first three Townsend solo records yep yep those are my favorite you know Pete, Pete album some of my favorite you know who material period yeah, was that Chris uh, Thomas producing Chris Thomas did Empty Glass uh, Chris Thomas did uh, all the uh, couples of uh, Chinese Eyes. Okay, so they were working together there. Chris uh, did uh, White City, I believe, with uh, okay. Bill uh, Engineering. Well, those first three. Yeah, okay. Uh, so I that covers that. that. You know, that was the one of the topics that kicked off this whole conversation about producers right was bill price and chris thomas working together and what a beautiful sound they got um and then i had the pistols which we talked about earlier carbon silicon uh nick jones's offshoot from the clash with uh, tony james for generation x yeah also for generation right and we saw you and i saw them live which was fun right Oh, it's one of the... Yeah, yeah, it was a great show. A great show, yeah. Um, um, he mixed uh, Mott the Hoople. He mixed the first Clash record. We're back to Bill Price now. Yeah. Um, and then later he did the Libertines, who Mick Jones produced. So it's another kind of connection with the Clash. And Baby Shambles, um, which was um, Pete Duggerty from the Libertines, who uh, Mick Jones also produced, so... Um, yeah. He did some cool later stuff, too. Yeah. I would be remiss not mentioning there's only one track to show from it, but that would be Chris Thomas and Bill Price working with The Clash. And that would be on an album called Concert for Campuchia. Oh, okay, so, sure. Uh, a double album that came out as a benefit, a series of, I think, two shows. Played in London in uh, December of, of 1979. Yeah, a classic performance of Armageddon time. Yeah, and uh, you know the other bands on that, uh, you know, the Pretenders, uh, the Who, Elvis Costello, the Specials, Queen, yeah, uh, Chris Thomas and Bill Price. 
did that album. But the the show, uh, the Clashes set for that show is, well, it's one of the first bootlegs I ever had of, of the Clash. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was actually played a little fast on vinyl. I've since, you know, received the correct speed of it. But it is almost unnervingly tight. Mm-hmm. Not that the Clash were always really tight, mm-hmm. but um, the sound, you could tell, even as an audience mix, was really deadly, really deadly. Interesting. I wonder if they uh, did did a lot of rehearsal or if they were just that tight. They, well, they were just, you know, London Calling was, they were just, had just finished that. And that right, good point. And it was like that, that week in the UK. Yeah. Wouldn't be till the next January that would be released in the, the US. That's why people think, oh, it's the great, one of the great albums of the 80s. Well, right. Well, it came out in 79. But my point being that if, if they have the multi uh, the multi track tapes of the clashes their set their entire set 16 songs that was the name of the uh, the bootleg of it on vinyl which I, I got in 19, 1980 uh, as a 15 year old uh, uh, 16 tracks is the name of it that would be possibly the greatest live album ever recorded that's interesting. I don't think I've ever, I, I've only heard like the few tracks on the album. It'd be really interesting to hear that full set. And it's wonderful sound. It's extremely, and this as an audience recording. Mm-hmm. It almost sounds like it might be uh, a board mix, but it clearly isn't. But just judging from that one Armageddon time, Armageddon time, uh, that was uh, released on the album proper, uh, for Campus Yet. Yeah. Boys, well, Chris Thomas, Bill Price, you know, individually, they're great. Collectively, they're better. And who better to work with than the Clash? You know. Yeah, Joe, um, like, he's got just these great little scat asides, like, use a calculator. It's not oh, Christmas yeah. time, you know. It's like so cool things he says. Well, the great thing about the Clash Live is that, you know, they had their own way of jamming. It wasn't yeah. the Great Old Dead's way of jamming. It wasn't the Coltrane Quartet's way of jamming. It was their way of jamming. Yeah. And a lot of that had to do with Joe having a big mouth. Yeah. Uh, he but he had something to say. Back. Huh? But unlike a lot of people, he actually has a lot of interesting things to say. Uh, he's a shaman. He's a yeah. shaman. Yeah. Uh, is what it was. Uh, he he was a, yeah, he, I think that's how, how he viewed his role. More, yeah. more than a singer, more yeah. than a guitar player. That's a very good observation. Uh, I like that. Uh, yeah, and I'm sorry to Mr. Paul Hewson, but uh, far more effective Shannon than, than, than Bono. Yeah, Joe really had something very, very special. And uh, a lot of it had to do with his mouth, a big mouth, and you couldn't understand what, you know, I've, I've got and I've heard a ton of, you know, Clash bootlegs, you know, of varying quality and uh, varying audio quality. They're, you know, uniformly, I think they're one of those few acts or bands that probably never played a bad gig. Yeah. At least, but, you know, the original, you know, uh, the original band. Uh, 
Yeah. Uh, may have been, you know, degrees of goodness or greatness comparing, you know, comparing it with themselves, uh, but they probably really never just... And that's one of the reasons they couldn't last long. And they, they, they had to break up. Yeah, the, and, the, uh, the quality, and they're one of those bands that, like, Never took a vacation, you know, it's just full throttle, you just couldn't sustain it. They should have taken a vacation, they should right. have, and that's right. why they didn't break up. But Paul Simmons, right? He didn't want to do a reunion, he didn't want a reunion for the Rock Hall Hall of Fame Award, he didn't want to do a reunion for when Joe died. Uh, Paul's right uh, about it. And they offered him, you know, just ridiculous money to do a one off show, you know, mm -hmm. as a reunion sometime in the 90s. And Paul said, no, I don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. We had our time, we made our mark, you know, they never sucked. They didn't, yeah, Yeah, yeah Clash Mark II, which is essentially just, you know, the Joe Strummer band. You know, that's a whole different band, a whole different vibe to me. It's a, it's a Clash tribute band. You know, we, right, and it was Joe as, as the gang boss as opposed to like, uh, you know, four individuals, kind of more of a democracy type of situation. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's five. You know, it's five guys who need two guys to replace McJones. And, of course, Paul just, you know, was Paul. There's Paul thing. Right. Uh, uh, yeah, it's just a different thing. It's a very good hard rock band with something to say and an irritating lead singer. And Joe was irritating as opposed to interesting on a lot of those... Uh, there's a lot of you know bootlegs out there you know from from that period i've, I've got the show that you and i saw in may of 80, uh, 84. yeah you know, ever want to you know record that uh, uh it's good sounding it's, it's pretty good sound too um but what, uh, one of the things that i'm not sure i want to relive it but uh one of the things i do remember clearly is having to wait forever for them to come on Shangoya opened for them, yeah. the local reggae band. They also opened for them in 82 on the Comeback Rock uh, show. But, uh, yeah, just Chris Thomas and Bill Price, if they ever get the, somebody's got to have, you know, Sony, somebody's got to have the, the multi-tracks of that gig, you know. Mick Jones probably had the, the inside joke amongst hardcore Clash fans is uh, Mick has all this, this stuff in his garden shed, you know. And yeah. Every few years he pulls something out and says, yeah, all right, I found this. <laughs> and the right. Clash do another money grab, you know, re-release, you know, uh, Clash Incorporated. Now you say Sony has those tapes in their vault. What, which ones are you referring to specifically? Because for Cappuccino. Cappuccino, uh, the actual, the original tape. Yeah. 1979 at the Hammersmith Odeon. Yeah. With, uh, I think, I think it was two shows. And I think the headliners were The Who and Queen. Yeah, uh, there had to be, if the, if the class played 16 songs, there had to be two or three shows. I mean, I can't imagine yeah. every band played 16 songs. On the album... Uh, the Ian Durian and the Blockheads, uh, Elvis Costello and the Attractions, The Pretenders, uh, I think maybe Nick Lowe and Rockpile, um, 
yeah, it's a double album on vinyl. Uh, it's been released on CD, I think. I don't, you know, currently have it on CD. Anything else you wanted to cover before I hit Nick Lowe? Lowe was a very, very good call, and uh, you know, big, influential. You know, done some great people. Very distinctive sound. Very distinctive aesthetic. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, uh, I I think Lowe's sound. And this is you know. Oh, think about uh, uh, the Pretenders' debut singles. You know, the Stop Your Sobbing. That's right. That's a Nick Lowe production. Yeah, how different that sounded from you know Chris Thomas's you know work on their you know their debut and their next two albums. Uh, and if, you know, it's a different band. He's a different drummer. Uh, Martin, Martin Chambers hasn't joined the band yet. Oh, um, Unstop Your Sobbing? Say again? Unstop Your Sobbing? Right. He was, Martin wasn't in the band yet. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, there's a, I forget the guy's name, some Scottish name. Uh, and, but Nick liked big, fat acoustic guitars you know, with the ringing electric guitars, you know. Yeah, that's yeah, such a great sound. It's a, it, it's a slight, it's kind of a slight sound. It's not like a big sound. It's, it, it owes a lot to, like, rockabilly and country, I think, mm-hmm. uh, his sensibilities. Yeah. The, his drum sounds are not, like, big, punchy drums. They're kind of almost in the background, in the mix. Yeah, well, think uh, about, you know, that band uh, Rock Pile... Seconds of Pleasure, that album, he the band he was in that uh, I assume he produced, which is very rockabilly, country-ish in its influences, and just a great sounding record. They're a great band. Think of the guys in it. Yeah. And you got Lowe on bass and vocals. Uh, Dave Edmonds. That's right. On guitar. The Stones apparently considered, you know, and there are many considerations for a replacement for Mick Taylor and. 74. Um, Billy Bremer, another great guitar player. Great guitar player. Guitar yeah. player on uh, you know, the two Pretenders tracks, uh, My City Was Gone and Back on the Chang. Uh, yeah. And played later, uh, I don't know, a later album up there. It's called Pact. Yeah. Um, and uh, I can't remember the drummer. Drummer is great. Uh, I can't remember who he was, but uh, they were just yeah, a great band of you know just great individual you know, musician collectively. Uh, yeah, and in terms of um, you know great records, Nick Lowe produced. He produced the first four Elvis Costello albums: My Aim Is True, yeah. This Year's Model, Armed Forces. Actually, five: Happy, Get Happy, and Trust. Yeah. And um, those are all yeah. great sounding records with especially, I think, the first one, um, the third one, Armed Forces, and the fourth one, Get Happy, all have their own distinctive sound, but just sound great. Yeah, my favorite sounding ones of those would be, uh, you know, this is model and Armed Forces, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Of those five. Uh, but yeah, just... Uh, a great and uh, again kind of like Dan Longwall we talked about earlier uh, Lowe is an actual real musician and a great musician too and 
a, a singer and a songwriter and arranger. So he's not just a producer. He's you know a very very uh, well-rounded musician. Um, right. He also did. Um, I think the first Graham Parker record, and he also did a Paul Carrick from Squeeze, who sang "Tempted." He did his album "Suburban Voodoo," which um, you know has got a great sound to it. So that's that's all I got for Nick Lowe. You got another producer? Uh, yeah, probably not. I mean, no. Um, I, I my my parting commentary would be. I think this is what a good producer is. What what the world needs now is a good producer. Uh, there's so much of this uh, music that it just all sounds. They're bad sounding records. They're just bad sounding. You mean music today? Yeah, and I'm I'm not even going to talk about you know the hip hop you know, so-called hip-hop uh, era. I mean, you know, the Bomb Squad doesn't exist anymore. And, uh, but, uh, you know, the Taylor Swifts and Olivia Rodrigo. Actually, I've heard a couple... Yeah, and I heard... Uh, that's such an... That's a really interesting topic. I, I heard some people talk about this yesterday. And, like, you know, part of the reason for that is, you know, people think they can just... You know, A, music goes, is a disposable product. Um, yeah. And um, B, everyone thinks they can record things at home. Um, and music, you know, the art, the art of production, and you know how things sound together, and the sound of the room, and the energy of the track, uh, kind of gets lost as people just try to make things sound as professional as they can, uh, you know, track by track, without thinking about the track as a whole. If that makes sense. I, in rooms, do, do they actually, they, meaning one of the wealthiest women on the planet, Taylor Swift, does she record in a room? I'm sure it's in a building. So, yeah, I guess by definition it's a room. I don't think that's the, the aesthetic. That's not the, that, that's not the sound. That's not the paradigm. It's got to do with computers. Right now, look, look, take Billie Eilish as an example. You know Billie Eilish? Yeah. You know, she records with a very expensive microphone, but uh, she records, you know, sitting, at least her first albums, you know, just sitting in uh, the studios, just kind of you know, like in a room at their parents' house, and she's just sitting cross-legged on her bed, singing into the microphone. Yeah, um, her brothers, her, you know... Total, yeah, total. so it's it's not about the sound of the room. It's capturing her voice, but... Uh, to your point, you know, the sound of the room has kind of gotten lost, I think. Well, I don't think there is a, a sound of a room. And yeah, Billie Eilish sounds like she's sitting on her bed in her room, and she sounds like she's actually prone, lying down in her bed. Uh, you, talk, you, you were saying she records in it. Well, you could have fooled me, man. It sounds like all those other records. It just sounds like they were recorded inside the software of a computer. Right. And the, the other thing is, like, you know, just recording budgets, you know, it's it's very hard to, um, you know, people don't have a budget to, like, hire a producer as much as they did before. I think, you know, who will actually produce, you know, the way you and I are talking about producers. Oh.
Okay. Uh, okay, let's put a pin in that. There's a couple other honorable mentions I just want to mention before we s- sum it up. And before you start editing me out. <laughs> um, yeah, 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 go So, yeah. okay, so I, don't, I just don't want to overlook um, Todd Rundgren. Todd Rundgren, uh, the New York Dolls first oh. album, and Cause I Said So. Oh, oh. Right? Okay. I know you'll appreciate that. Not just the Dolls' first album. Uh, oh, geez. Tom Robinson Band's second album, TRB2. Yep. Psychedelic Furs, third album, Forever Now. Very distinctive sound. Patti Smith, uh, the album Wave. X- yeah. XTC, yeah. XTC Skylarking, maybe their yeah. best XTC album. Yeah, just such a weird sound. It was so loud and blaring and in your face and just like it's like Todd would be saying, I'm going to make the ultimate pop record. You know, I'm just gonna like everything is gonna be really loud and colorful and cheery and in your face. Yeah, very strange. Which record are you talking about now? I'm just talking about his general... His general sensibility. Sensibility of a record. And I really don't know much about his actual work with, you know, Utopia or as a solo artist, you know. Um, you know. Hello, it's me. It was 25, 30 years before I even knew that was Todd. Right. And it's, you know, it's back to your point about he was a producer who was also a very accomplished musician. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But just an odd way of, 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 of uh, making records. I mean, great sounding. Some of those records are, are just, you know, great favorites of mine. The Dallas debut, yeah. Tom Robinson, Psychedelic Furs records. Uh, uh, yeah. I, uh, okay. Uh, another one, uh, John Leckie, who we mentioned earlier, he was involved on the first, um, not as a producer, but... I, as a tape operator or something on the first uh, John Lennon uh, Plastic Ono Band solo record. Uh, and then he went on to produce The Stone Roses, Radiohead, Bebop Deluxe, The Fall, Felt, Denim, Robin Hitchcock, The Verve, Ride, Ian McNabb. Um, so he has some... Simple Minds. I think he did a couple of early Simple Minds albums too. I bet, I bet you're right. That makes sense. Um, and then um, Hugh Padgham uh, did Ghost in the Machine and um, Synchronicity, um, Sting, Julian Cope, Split Ends, Time and Tide. Um, Mitch Easter did the first um, REM EP and also the first two records, Murmur and Reckoning. Uh, he did Game Theory, his own band, Let's Active. He did Marshall Crenshaw. And um, Giles Martin, George Harrison's son, did the Beatles. And you know, when George Martin started to lose his hearing, Giles Martin kind of became his set of ears. And Giles worked on the Beatles anthology, the Paul McCartney album New, and all these recent a lot of very beautiful remixes of uh, Revolver, Sgt. Pepper, White Album, Abbey Road, the Red and the Blue albums, and the new Beatles, quote-unquote, final single, Now and Then. Well, he did the Love album, too. 
That's right. And he worked on the Love remixes, which were really fun, actually. Quite, in, oh, quite inventive. And very creative. Very inventive. That's, to me, that's the final great Beatles album. It's not Let It Be, you know, either, you know. Mm -hmm. Without Till Spectre, it's actually the Love album. That qualifies, I think, as a standalone, you know, work of art. Uh, yeah. Beatles canon. Uh, yeah. Wonderful, wonderful work by Jalice Martin. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Good call there. Good call there. Two pads, you might want to say this. One of my favorite bands ever of all time, The Waitresses. Uh, you know, yeah. Talk about them. They only did two albums on an EP, but their second album was uh, Two Pads and Do It. Oh, cool. Very cool. And it. The sound is just vastly different. The, the band sounds not vastly different, but just the whole vibe. It's really loud. It's really blaring. Billy Fikas drums are really loud, really blaring. And this is, you know, 1983. And uh, it, it sort of doesn't work. Uh, it's, the songs are less catchy. They're... I think it's equally as compelling. It's not quite as great an album as their debut. But it was Chris Thomas, or not Chris Thomas, Chris Butler, you know, the architect and songwriter and guitar player behind, yeah. chose Hugh Padgham for his work on XTC. Oh, apparently, okay. you know, Chris Thomas is you know, one of his favorite bands. Uh, so I'll, I'll just throw that in there. Mm -hmm. And it, it doesn't work. They're not a, they're not an English or British band, you know, uh, from Akron, Ohio, and New York City. Uh, a different vibe, a different sensibility. Well, Chris Butler, well, he wanted, damn it, I want you pageant to do it, and then we got this, you know, record company money, and they said we, you know, we can afford them, and uh, the yeah. band broke up in the studio. Patty Donahue left. I tried to get Holly Vincent from Holly and the Italians to come in to take her place. That didn't work, so I got, you know, the bass player, Tracy Wormworth, to do vocals, uh, and that didn't work. They uh, uh, released one or two song versions of, of her vocal takes, but then Patty came back, finished the album, and they promptly broke up. Okay. And, as all great bands do after two albums. <laughs> yeah, no, that's cool. I didn't know his connection to the waitresses. Um, he, I really like the sound of the second to last police record, Ghost in the Machine. That's a really great sounding record. Um, and then just to tie a bow on it, he, along with, you know, he was working with Steve Lillywhite on that G Peter Gabriel third album where they came up with the, that gated reverb. And I don't know if that was more Lillywhite or more Padgham, but. Between the two of them, they they came up with that new sound. Yeah, it's hard to say. That became ubiquitous in, in the, the the 80s, you know, uh, you know, for better and worse. But uh, Lily like certainly had that. Thank you, Patrick. You know, certainly had that. Well, um, again, British guys with their really really big drum sounds, you know. Yeah. Uh, for some reason they. But I hope that, you know, this, even though, like, a, in a lot of ways, you know, production has kind of been forgotten in today's music, I hope 
by like having like the discussions like you and I are having like it doesn't have to be forgotten you know there's a certain art to production that's just as important as the the song that is written and the musicians that are playing and the mixers and the engineers and everyone else involved it's such a critical part of the process uh yeah it is you know i'm still listening to the new stones album you know regularly and i yeah. just, i just love it but you know you knew i would you but like I, you like the production of that well uh, the sidetrack steve lillywhite did their dirty work album yeah in six, and that's wildly considered their worst album ever yeah. I've come to like it, but I remember being very disappointed with it when it came out. I was expecting, oh, wow, Lily White's doing the new Stones. They haven't had an album out in three years at that point. And, yeah, it just, it didn't work for me. I love it now. I mean, I like yeah. it. So I like the Rolling Stones. I like their, their aesthetic. I like their vibe. Whatever. Sound-wise wasn't happening and, and so that leads I'm, I'm now I'm getting up to the current one you know Hackney Diamonds Andrew Watt is that his name the producer Andrew Watt yeah I guess he's a young like early 30s New York City guy yeah whatever his deal is um you know he must be bringing something interesting to the picture because an interesting side note is Paul McCartney I guess is working with him on his new upcoming stuff yeah yeah that's apparently how you know they were talking and, and, and Paul Jagger and Paul were talking Paul turned him on to it and Jagger said yeah yeah I've already got him oh, okay. on my radar and yeah okay so he, you know Ozzy Osbourne if you like that kind of thing got him did Iggy Pop's last album apparently and apparently that was a really good record uh and uh who andrew what yeah okay yeah uh and justin bieber if you've ever heard justin bieber well okay he's produced justin bieber uh i guess that's well he got paid for it so you know whatever okay justin bieber got paid uh um <clears throat> no the sound of the record i don't like Apparently of what the new stones record really of Hackney Diamonds, new Stones out. Yeah, I, I, I think it just sounds crazily like overproduced, like reverb to the ninth degree. I'm calling it overprocessed. Overprocessed, yeah. Yeah, uh, me too. Me too. I listened to it on headphones one time on you know a crappy system, but um, and uh, apparently the Stones have released there's an Atmos. Uh, mix of it. Atmos is a, yeah. a, 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 an audio system like Dolby or whatever. Right. Like, okay, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, it's kind of like, remember in the 70s, they had like quadraphonic, you know, like four speakers. At, Atmos is like that, right. but like on steroids. Okay. But supposedly it sounds really good, and there's things that come out of the mix that you can't hear on the standard release. Yeah, that's what they say about the new Beatles mixes, too, yeah. Whatever, right? Most, most people don't, yeah. Most people don't, but apparently it's commercially available, and you know, for download, I, I don't know if there's a physical release of the Atmos mix, but that, 
Um, that's the, the, the only problem I have is the processing, I'm, I'm calling it, on the new stones. Yeah. Like, the only stones. Okay, this is a bar band. This is a garage band, you know? Yeah. And why stones had to sign off on it. They had to approve it, you know? And yeah, I don't get it. I mean, especially when you listen to how great some of their, you know, we talked earlier about their great sounding albums, how great those sounded, why you'd want it to sound like this. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, if you want to talk about sound, make sure there's a distinction between the sound of the record and the songs or the back, you know, the instrumental tracks, or, you know, there, there's a distinction. It's a very, I think, a real distinction. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I mentioned earlier, like, Taylor Swift, or, you know, Olivia Rodrigo, or Ariana Grande, whatever. You know, maybe there's some good songs there. Maybe there's some great songs by my wife. Yeah. Now I will. I will say about Olivia Rodrigo, um, I have newfound respect for her because I've seen a few things she's done on, on like Saturday Night Live or um, late night television where she's like playing piano. She's like a real musician. She's the real deal. She's not just um, a singer put up and you know to sing songs. Uh, on her new record, uh, what's it called? Guts, I think. Uh, I've heard two songs that I actually kind of like. It sounds like she's been listening to The Waitresses and Romeo Void. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, she's got s- some interesting things going on. Uh, yeah, are they good sounding records? Uh, no, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I don't think the records sound good. I think mm-hmm. her ideas sound good, and that's why I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Maybe get her, and, and of course, instrumentally, is there anything to li- listen to instrumentally? Can you follow, like, you get in a groove, you know, you eat, you eat a gummy and you have a beer and you go, wow, I mean, you're, you're, you're grooving on the bass track, you're grooving on the guitar or the, the sax or or the, the mountain fiddle or the, the flute. Or, you know, I want to hear, like, some, I want to hear people hitting bottles with sticks. I want to hear teacups mistakenly falling off the table rolling around i want to hear some interesting I mistakes i do and i'm not joking man. i know you're not joking either no i do i want to hear those things uh i think so that's I, part of what's gotten lost uh and the musicians union is going broke and they don't want to do because they ain't getting any work and you know and people don't want to be musicians anymore if they do they're you know Oh, I'm going to be the fastest guitar player ever. I'm going to be, you know, like, you know, faster than anybody else. I'm sure there are people out there working. There's, you know, it's a big world, and, um, and 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 you know, guitar bands. Not like everything, you know, loses or dies by whether you have an electric guitar on it. But I, musically, I'm not hearing anything on these records. These current, you know, I'll call them the Taylor Swift records that that thing now you, you can say and with you know some legitimacy that well okay that harkens back to the Phil Spector and the Motown you know aesthetic you know the hit factory thing where you know Phil Spector triple tracking double tracking the drums and you know quadruple tracking the pianos and 
like that. I mean, you're not supposed to pick out instrumental. It's just uh, instrument. It's symphonic sound. Fair enough. I'm still not. I still think they're bad sounding records. The mastering is bad. The mixing is bad. Uh, now I'm not hearing them on a good system. You know, I hear, hear most of the stuff at work. Uh, right, but with that being said, you know, like you're talking about mainstream music. I'm still hearing, you know, there's great music out there. Like, just to give you an example, today I was listening to a radio show by Guy Garvey from the band Elbow. He does a weekly radio show on BBC Six Music. And he was playing this band called Flight, F L Y T E, uh, an album from 2019. A song called I Still Believe in You, and it's a great sounding record. And there's still a lot of beautiful music being made, but the thing is, like, it's harder to find it, but it's out there. Yes, I agree with you 100% on all your points. Uh, I agree with you. I'm using the lowest common denominator, culturally speaking. Uh, as a reference point. There right. was a time when we, we could have used Michael Jackson as that reference point, or the Beatles as that reference point, or Elvis Presley, or Frank Sinatra as that, you know, the lowest common denominator thing. That's why I'm talking about the Taylor Swift sound, you know, her current sound, and that, that, that aesthetic. And it has a lot to do with technology, and technology is, by nature, it's an advancing, th encroaching thing. It encroaches upon our lives, our sensibilities, how we experience the world, how we experience life, you know, everything, you know, the internet, uh, everything, the, the internal combustion machine, you know, uh, and uh, people want, Andrew Watt is produced young guy for its last song zone. So, what's the deal? Here's my take. He's got backing, backing, he's got pressure, backing, whatever you want to call it, from big money. Uh, software and technology manufacturers and promoters are saying to him, Andrew Watt, Use our technology on the latest McCartney or Stones or Justin Bieber. Use our technology. You know, do it. And he, uh, oh yeah, of course I am. You know, it, it makes it easier to make records, cheaper to make records. You don't have to, have, you know, hire re real musicians. Uh, and if you do, it doesn't matter. You just loop them and, you know, you don't have to do 17 takes. You just do one take and good enough, thanks, here's your union scale, you know. In that way, I think the te technology, although technology and in, in record making has obviously been a great thing, I think right now it's hit a wall mm -hmm. in how records sound and how they're being made. And it's not like, yeah, you have to spend, you know, um, three and a half million dollars to make a record or whatever, you know, or however many dollars, depending on the year or the era. But they sound, the records, I'm telling you, Taylor Swift might have some good songs. You know, I've heard a couple that sound all right. She, she, she's perfectly mediocre. She might be even good. 
She might be. I can't tell from the damn recorded track. Because it's not produced, it's not produced well. No, no, it is not. And probably not mastered well either. Uh, mixed. Maybe they're mixed well, exactly how she wants them mixed. I don't know. But there, there's, there doesn't seem to be any ideas behind it except get this out the door. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you could say that about, you know, Motown or Stax Records, you know, we're, we're hit factories. I don't know. I know if you listen to Otis Redding and Colin Thomas doing Tramp with Booker T and the MGs, all four of them, and, uh, you know, the Memphis Horns, all two of them, uh, you know, in one take with no overdubs, well, Carl actually overdubbed her vocal. Uh, they didn't do it at the same time, but never mind. You know, from a hit factory, meaning Stax Volt Records in 1967, that track was recorded. It's a little before Otis died. There's stuff to listen to. You want to listen to the guitar? You like you you like a big fat bass? Hey, duck down. You can just groove away. You like a big a big drum sound? Al Jackson Jr. You know, you want some horns? You know, you want a little tinkling of piano, Booker T. Jones. There's stuff to listen to. There's personality behind it, you know? Otis and Kyle are fading in and out of the mix. You know, it sounds like two people having a hilarious conversation with each other, you know? And where is that on the record charts? Olivia Rodriguez. I told, yeah, as I said, and there's a couple tracks and she's doing the conversational thing on one of them. I think it's called Get You Back or Get Him Back. And it sounds for all the world, it sounds like 1982. Sounds like The Waitresses. Sounds like Romeo Boyd. It sounds like Late Era Blondie. Uh, You know? So it can be done, you know? It, it, It can be done. But the actual sounds of the records, I don't know. So, to wind this back, I love the new Rolling Stones record, but it's definitely a lousy sounding record. Right. And one other one other record I'd like to mention, which relates back to your point about Stax, is uh, Big Star. You ever listen to them much? Yeah, no, I a blind spot. Everything I've heard, I've loved. But, yeah. And even, you know, Chilton, Alice Chilton, Soul, stuff, everything I've heard, I've loved. But I never, you know... I just never got into them. I never jumped on the, you know, replacements bandwagon and, you know, started listening to them. Okay, well, they, um, their first record is cleverly called Number One Record, and they were from Memphis, Tennessee. They recorded uh, this studio called Ardent in Memphis, and they were were big Beatles heads. And um, they didn't have a lot of money, but they uh, were buddies with... um, the guy who ran the studio, and he let them... Uh, at Ardent. Ardent. At, at Ardent. Ardent, yes. And so the owner would let them come in uh, and um, just spend their own sweet time whenever there was downtime, like in the evenings, and record throughout the night. So if you want to hear like a great produced, a great sounding record, 
um, those big star records, and just as, as an example, number one record, just an incredible sounding record. Yeah, I, I, Jed, we've talked about it before, and I, I believe you and trust your instincts. I believe Paul Westerberg and trust his instincts as well. And I'll get in, I'll get into it when I get into television. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, and the next record, Radio City, um, that was 1974. Uh, that was also a great sounding record by Big Star. Sister Lover was that? Sister's that Lovers was like 78 ish. Uh, okay. Also a, a great sounding record. Yeah. I, yeah. I, um, I believe you and I trust you and no, I will. I, 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 I'll do my due diligence and I'll, I'll, I'll learn something and get some musical joy in life. Yeah, if nothing else, just pull them up on YouTube. You can, you can listen to the. Television, Marquee Moon, Big Star Number One, Big Star Radio City, because uh, they deserve Big Star deserves honorable mention. Just if we're going to talk about the Memphis connection, reminded me of that. Uh, yeah, and you know, Chilton was you know, I, I, I don't know as a producer, she was you know a big producer, did a lot of people. He did you know the demos. Uh, initial tracks for the replacements, you know, Tim album, uh, which were just released on the on the big box set that came out a few months ago, um, and and they're great. Uh, and how much of that is the band or the engineer, or how much of it is children's input? I don't know. Because um, you know, I love the record anyway, and all the outtakes are, are just much fabulous anyway but um so i don't know was chilton was he renowned as a as a producer you know you know later in life when he's doing his, his solo thing um no not particularly um you know i'm looking right now at the um wikipedia page for like the big stars first record because i feel like um um there was a producer who was involved, producer John Fry. Okay, so he was the producer of, uh, uh, he was the founder of Ardent Records. Uh, okay, so he was the one who let them use the studio. Who, who had, He was like uh, really smart in terms of electronics and stuff. So we should give John Fry a lot of credit for the sound of these big star records. Now, I, I may be way off on this, but I'm going to suggest that I thought I'd heard Ardent was the old Stax studio after Stax, you know, went bankrupt and, and folded um, in like 74, 75, I want to say, that Ardent was the renamed studio. Am I completely just making this up or imagining this? No, I think you might be right. Um, there's some connection there. Jim Dickinson, who produced... Art in Studios. Okay, here we go. It was founded by John Fry. It was initially a studio in his family's garage. Um, blah, blah, blah. Tom Dowd was consulting with Audiotronics on an early multi-track console for nearby Stax Records. 
and Fry ordered the same input modules for his second mixing board. I know Tom Dowd. I know, I know his. Arden became the first four-track studio in Memphis. Arden became home to young producers such as Jim Dickinson. That's who I was trying to think of. Uh, you're about to mention him. I was just interrupting. He produced the replacements, Please to Meet Me Out. Right. Arden came to have three studios equipped. So... Yeah, I was thinking Jim Dickinson had produced those early big star records, but no, he was he was a session player at Muscle Shoals Studio. He's part of the house house band. He played piano on like the Stones' uh, uh, Wild Horses, and they recorded that and Brown Sugar and uh, You Got to Move while they're on tour in America in '69. Jim Dickinson played on it, and Jim Jim Dickinson was a piano player with the studio, the house band at Muscle Shoals in Alabama. Okay, now, okay, now, I've, now I figured it out. So the first and second Big Star records were um, John Fry, okay, who owned Ardent Recordings and Studio. The third Big Star record, uh, which is called Third or Sisters Lovers, was yeah. produced by Jim Dickinson. So there's the connection. Yeah, and Dickinson then later produced The Replacements, uh, right. Pleased to Meet Me in... Which had the song Alex Chilton on it. Say again? Which had the song Alex Chilton on that record, correct? Yeah, and it was recorded in Memphis at, I believe, Arden Studios. Right, okay, that would make sense. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, we're a small world and all, all that kind of thing. Um, Mystery solved. I feel much better now. Okay, yeah. So, uh, uh, and, and I've learned something. But if you uh, want to hear like a record that just sounds, even if you like, it was recorded today, like number one record by Big Star just sounds so good. And like we were talking earlier about, you know, drum sounds and guitar sounds and just each thing recorded so well those first two big star records number one record at radio city just sounds so good no i believe you i believe it it's just um i gotta uh, i don't know i gotta get some more money in my bank account uh because i i don't do streaming i like physical product and that's it yeah sure uh, but there were just a blind spot and yeah as you know you know i i just have many many blind spot stuff that i just I don't know. Yeah, well, that's why it's great to have these conversations. Like, you hit me to, like, some Tom Robinson stuff that I'm going to have to check out that I didn't know about. Sector 27, man. Yeah, Sector 27. I'm going to check that out for sure. Song after song. It's unnerving. It's like Tom almost yells through a lot of me. He's Mm -hmm. got that classic BBC BBC English accent, I Mm -hmm. think they call it, with Tom Robinson band and much of the solo work. and his vocals are just really raw on this, and they're really, really sound really personal and intimate, not socio-political mm-hmm. concerns of the Robinson band. Uh, and just musically and sonically, what is this stuff, you know? It's yeah. a rubbery wire band, rubber band bass playing, just a freaky guitar player, you know, multiple over- overdubs, you know, obviously, but, you know, like, you know, Gang of Four, uh, yeah, I want to say, 
angular quality and the edge is in there as well and, and just literally like just just doing the classic thing just the, the weird the noisy cinematic yeah it just it sounds like a movie it sounds mm-hmm. like a movie oh, 10 songs it's a very short album uh, yeah it sounds great oh I think you personally you know would, would like it yeah cool yeah, yeah, it was good. It was good. Well, you you'll have to sprinkle your you know magic fairy dust on it. Make it you know palatable, palatable to the masses, to the millions who tune in every uh, every culture drop podcast that we do. There are millions of people waiting on our every word and medicine tea to make it. Palatable. That's right. Yeah. Uh, it's just a matter of time before we get sponsorship from BMW and. Frito Lay and everybody else. Right, right. Oh, well, in my fan, I completely, I, I completely forgot. This guy Jet Bonnywell. You heard of this guy from you know Minneapolis? Uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's pretty good. He's pretty good. Check this guy out. Got a great album out uh, called Space Summit. Uh, yeah, great, great project. Yeah. Okay. There you go, man. You're my like you're my you're our the best spokesman out there. You just gotta start walking the streets. Thank you very much. I'll send you an invoice and send me the checks. Checks in the mail. Yeah.